The following podcast is proudly brought to you by Vite Ramen. Use the link in the description and use offer code BROKENSILICON to get 10% off tasty, healthy, and easy-to-make ramen. And also use the offer code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off windows, keys, and die shrink to get 3% off everything else on the website at cdkeyoffer.com. Now on with the show. Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and today I've I've actually had you on the list to get on at some point this year, whenever there was an opening, especially once uh, discussions became very heavy around supply chains and pricing, which, I mean, that's been heavily discussed, let's be honest, for over a year, but it just seemed like the right time now with at least gamers discussing it heavily with what's going on with a lot of recent graphics card releases. And and you've been someone that I've talked to for for years. <laughs> you know, you, you really are a veteran of semiconductors and reporting on semiconductors and, you know, working with other people who report on it too and consulting. So, yeah, I'll, I'll let you in, introduce yourself now. Right. So my name is, well, Lars Jordan technically, but uh, I tend to go by Lars or LG these days. Swedish mm-hmm. names don't really work well internationally. Yeah, I've been a tech journalist for over a decade, and then I ended up working in the industry and have run my own company out of Taiwan for the past five years. Obviously, this uh, little pandemic caused some issues with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's caused issues with a lot of things, and it's uh, won't seem to get rid of itself yet, will it? But... On a cheerier note, though, hopefully, I mean, I, I'm curious, you know, as little or as much as you want to say, I mean, like, so, so you're from Sweden, right? Yep. You know, what what got you, What when did you first start getting into, I mean, it's such a, <laughs> a blah way to say it, but computers. When did you get into computers? What do you first remember? You know, what games did you play when you were younger and what, what led you on the path to reporting on them? Well, I, I guess... Computers was something all the interesting, slightly older kids had at the time when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And I actually started learning German in school, didn't find it very interesting. And they had computing classes, so I jumped over to that. But I kind of moaned a bit to my dad and said, oh, you know, we don't have a computer at home. And the school computers were the weird school system only, only used in Sweden, really bizarre mm-hmm. CPM systems. So he ended up buying a computer and since we're going to talk about cost of computers and things, that was over 3,000 US dollars back then. That must have been uh, mid-90s. So, you know, that, that was a 386 SX, 16 megahertz, 2 mega RAM, 40 megabyte hard drive, super powerful MyTech. But, you know, it, it's interesting that it went from that first computer he bought to what I've ended up working with for my whole life, because that was kind of what really sparked my interest. Mm-hmm that I got my own computer, I could play around with it. All my friends that had Amigas, Ataris, Commodore 64s and this stuff, which I have to admit I've never really used, well, apart from when I was at their places and played games on them. Mm-hmm. But I've been a, guess a PC guy through and through. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of years later, I got lucky. I won a 
competition in a computer magazine in Sweden. Won myself an Amstrad 486. I started upgrading that. Then I ended up building my own computer. And yeah, I, I just kept going. And uh, uh, one of my first real jobs was for one of the first ISPs in Sweden. Because someone I knew went from a BBS to being an internet service provider. Then I worked uh, some support jobs and a bit of this and that. Then I ended up in the UK and uh, had a couple of sort of crappy, you know, normal jobs. And then one of the computer magazines, they were advertising mm -hmm. in the back for a labs tester. So I went for the interview and uh, I guess I got lucky. The editor of the magazine liked me and I did really well in sort of the hands-on part of the, well, interview test, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. they, they put a PC in front of you and you had to spec it up. You had to write some thoughts about it, uh, price it up and everything. And apparently I did really well in that and they hired me. So that was a magazine called PCW or Personal Computer World, not the same as the US magazine. Mm -hmm. And yeah, from there on, <laughs> I've been. I mean, it's a long, it's a long uh, resume. Yeah, yeah, and you know, don't feel. Uh, you know, I think everyone feels the need to sell themselves short. Um, it sounds like you got that job because you knew your stuff better than most people. <laughs> I don't think you got yeah, lucky. Sure. Well, it was a bit of luck as well. You know, you had someone better been there, well, that would have been it, and I would never have been doing what I've been doing for the past twenty years or so. You don't think you would have applied to another one? It was it was one of those applications you put in because you're like, oh, this looks cool. Let me try. No, I, I did actually apply for a job with a magazine in Sweden, but failed miserably because I was not considered a good writer. Mm. But these guys were good to me, and they let me start write for the magazine, little games reviews on the side or like little MP3 players and crap like that, while I was the guy who was busy doing the benchmarks for them normally, like the graphics cards and sort of the boring stuff, CD burners, anyhow. That was one of the first things I got to test for the magazine was a group test of CD burners. Mm -hmm. That took a lot of time because they were only four-speed drives back then. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, you, you touched on something that I think now would be a good time to cover. Uh, we, we talked, you know, of course, before we recorded to just kind of touch base, you know, pick your brain, and mm -hmm. what can we talk about? And I brought up a, a thing my friend said where I, I was I was discussing, you know, what's going on with pricing and, and and to be clear before I continue, I do expect pricing for the same given performance to get better over time at the end of this year. But it's not as drastic as we saw. I think what was clearly the PC gaming renaissance of 2012 to about 2016. And I said, well, you know, things are changing. Costs are up. The, the cost to go to new nodes is drastically more. Like, we solved Moore's Law temporarily by spending 100 times more than we used to. That's how we've solved it. And that's going to have repercussions. He goes, yeah, but that doesn't make sense. Things are always supposed to get cheaper. And I said, based on, ordained by who? You know, yeah. in the 90s, a PC, you said, was 3,000. And I think ours was 2,500. And that was a very low-end PC back then. And remember, adjusting for inflation, you know, what is that then, like, 4,000, 4,500 in today's money? The, the prices obviously went down really fast once we got into the 486s because there was a lot of competition. You, you no longer had sort of, well, what should we call it, the IBM kind mm -hmm. of era. It was the clone era, so you had all the Taiwanese companies coming in. 
you had all the different CPU manufacturers, you had AMD, you had Cyrix, you have all these guys, Winchip. So there, there was some real competition back then as well. You had a bunch of different motherboard manufacturers. So that, that was kind of when everything took off, I guess, in a way. And that's when PCs became, well, I guess we can call it quite mainstream. You know, let me ask you this, because this is a discussion point, you know, how things changed over the past 25 years. Everyone talks about how, like, Moore's Law slowed down, you know, whatever. How much of that was just logically going to happen, do you think? And how much of it was that so many people were just relying on Intel to be in the lead, and then they kind of almost became a monopoly? And I don't, I don't think it's fair to say they got lazy, but maybe they missed their their eye wasn't on the ball anymore and they stalled and then that's why there was so much stagnation how much of it do you think was just logical and everyone kind of slowing down at the same time and how much do you think it was caused by a temporary period of lower competition i think intel as you said they got complacent so it's not so much that things slowed down they just partially didn't have any real competition partially this is what they've done for a while and they People were happy buying the same things, right? Rehashed, repackaged with a little bit more performance, a little bit higher clock speeds. No one complained. Mm -hmm. So wh why should they push themselves? They could save a lot of money on this and just keep going. Yeah, and I remember interviewing a server engineer years ago now at this point, and he said, you know, uh, we kind of liked it. Like, for our jobs, it was easy. It's like, we know it's going to be like 10% better next year. We can spec out a server. It'll no use this much energy. It'll be, it'll have this upgrade to PCIe and this, this, this every time. And we just know that's going to be the thing we upgrade to. And the fact that it's the same amount roughly every year made our jobs really easy to predict and scale over time as we just kind of treated servers like a commodity, less so than a big upgrade. Yeah, and I, I think that was nice and convenient for the industry as well. Now, Amiable Chief writes in and he says, Hi, Tom and Lars. What effect on consumer product pricing do you foresee in a few years when fabs are plentiful, but so is competition, at least relative to the previous few years? Does this mean shorter product cycles with fractional performance gains between competing products and no clear winner? How does the industry go about recouping the massive CapEx investment in production capacity we are seeing today while being, and he puts this in quotes, reasonable in this new pricing singularity, which is what I call the 6500 XT launch, which we, I don't want to talk about it quite yet to, in too much detail, uh, but like the pricing singularity, you know, this is when inflation shortages and rising costs, I think hit home extra hard finally, you know, that we'll look back and go, yep, that's when pricing kind of changed. Like, do you expect that this, do you feel like this is happening, like pricing singularity? Do you think pricing will get better over the next few years? And, and do you see this period as a time of far greater competition than before, like he's saying it is? I think we have far less competition than ever. <laughs> Obviously, mm. Intel is coming in on the graphics side now, so that will probably make things a little bit more interesting. But I, I do believe we'll see definitely pricing decrease from now since everything mm. is unreasonably priced. But obviously, we're in a perfect storm right now with shortage of pretty much any kind of components, crazy shipping prices, labor shortages, or mm -hmm. labor restrictions at least. So all, all this is sort of causing problems. I mean, I talked to someone that works at a company that makes SSDs, and they said, well, we, we, we can get <laughs> certain parts, but, uh, you know, there, there's not a shortage of things, but, you know, we can't get everything at one time. 
Mm -hmm. And it seems to be the same for uh, DDR5, where companies like Micron and uh, Samsung in these guys, they're churning out memory chips, but they don't have stuff to get it packaged and you can't get the power regulation bits. Mm -hmm. So that that's sort of the situation we're in now. And um, the other issue that is starting to get reported now is that a lot of these big companies, they're putting in orders for a year ahead. So now they're starting to stockpile. There's been reports about certain system components being stockpiled by the large mm -hmm. manufacturers. And that is causing shortage for other players in the industry. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard about that too. Uh, I think I reported on that a few months ago. Now everyone's well aware that there are some, like I heard quotes of people like just placing orders for three, four times as much as they actually need just because they're like, whatever, we'll take it. We're worried. Just whatever you make, we will pay this much for it. But it seems like a lot of people are doing that at the same time. Doesn't that mean they're, it's it's becoming a bubble though, right? Like this is going to have to crash and actually yeah. crash within a year. Not just, I think we're going to see a steady decline in pricing this summer, but I think at some point, probably, again, I guess, early 2023 is when there's going to be a crash again though, like in pricing on things. Don't you think like, it has to happen? Crash, maybe not, but we're definitely going to go back to a lot more reasonable pricing. I mean... It depends, again, on the company as well, because the, the big problem that has been is the just-in-time system, right? That mm -hmm. is completely busted now. And when you have motherboard manufacturers here in Taiwan that are used to placing their orders three months ahead of production, that now has to do this six to 12 months before production, it, it's a completely different industry. And I think a lot of these companies are really having to rethink their strategy as well and their product sort of development and technically everything they're doing as a business. Mm -hmm. now, how, how do you think this will make people change their products? Um, like one thing I've discussed that's been discussed heavily is like with bringing it up again, I just can't stop coming up in the conversations I have. The RX 6500 XT, I, I keep trying to explain, well, they can't just add to the die last minute. Whatever they designed years ago, yeah. that's the die. They but And they repurposed it. Having said that, I feel like they always should have designed it with more PCIe lanes, and it's actually weird that has only four. That the I think it's actually weird Navi 23 it has only eight lanes as well. It's just like you never thought maybe this might be used for anything else in the future. Do you think companies will maybe design some of their products to be more useful long-term in other uses? No. No. Simple reason, cost. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you make a bigger chip, it's going to cost you more. So the more things you can strip out that doesn't take up die space, the cheaper the bid is going to be at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at sort of the ARM processor market, since I've been doing a lot of embedded things in the past few years, a lot of those chips are stripped down to the bare minimum these guys can put in there to get away with it. Mm -hmm. So the fewer interfaces you have, the smaller the packaging. So everything from making the chip until the packaging and until you sell it, you're saving money on. So I, I, I think a lot of people forgot that there are more steps involved in this than just making the chip die, right? And I guess let's cover that now since we are talking about it like this. I don't know, the, the, this pricing singularity, I called it, you know, the low end. I mean, heck, I remember when low end GPUs that you could compare to what is a modern 6500 XT? I, I remember when they were like $80, <laughs> let alone 120, then 150. I, I, you know, 
It's funny how people point to different things, and it's like, no, the prices were were always going up every gen by about 20 bucks, actually, um, in those areas. But now it's gone up by 50, maybe, or more, $60 in one gen. Having said that, that they haven't really launched a lot of low end, so the comparison is actually years ago. But, like, how much of the 6500 XT and maybe even some of the products above it are, how much of the higher price than before is more margin being taken by people and how much of it is mm, it is more expensive to make now i would say 40 percent more expensive 60 percent people taking more margin mm-hmm. rough guess because yes it is more expensive for everyone i mean everything from pcb costs to yeah every single little capacitor and resistor on there have gone up in price but then you have all the middlemen mm-hmm. between from when that card leaves the factory until it arrives to you i mean the shipping guys are charging more you have the shipping now from the ports have gone up fuel costs have gone up so all this adds up to the total cost of the retail price right Mm because obviously the 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 aib partners are not paying for the some of this shipping cost they they're charging that to their customers in the distribution then the distributor put that on the cost that they for what they sell into the channel and then in the end the shop you buy your card from they're going to charge you that what extra they got charged plus their profit right and and i guess one thing i want to be clear about then because i think a lot of people might think that i'm saying you know it's only going to get worse every month from here on out and it's not true like if i do if we say it was 40 percent costs up then it would be like a 170 dollar card instead of a 120 dollar card or whatever you want to say it would have been right which i think is kind of fair so I do think once shortages get better, the 6500 XT actually will gravitate to its MSRP and probably drop a bit below it. I mean, I covered that in my leaks about it, that people think, no, you can make this profitably if things were not even back to where they used to be, but better than now. You, you can make this, they can make money at like 170 or so, and I think that will happen. But I, I don't think I don't think we're getting sub one fifty dollar graphics cards really again though unfortunately. Well, we're also getting more stuff on there in a way. We're we're getting more memory on most cards. Obviously, not the <laughs> not the sixty five hundred XT. Yeah. No, but we we've seen a gravitational move towards more and more memory. I mean, AMD put sixteen gigs on most of their cards this time around. Or their high-end cards, at least, which is a first. But NVIDIA, they've been a bit more... <laughs> Hesitant to do that <laughs> it would be a nice way to put it, but yeah. Yes. So they, they've always not been as affected, but again, their chips are probably a bit more expensive to make, so it makes up for that. But what are we going to see this year? We don't really know, but Intel has gone with 16 gig on some other cards, mm-hmm. from what we know, right? So it's unlikely that the trend is going to change and we're going to see less RAM on graphics card in general, despite the increase in cost, right? I think next gen, they're going to, it's going to be, everything's going to have more. Like they wanted to do that this gen. And I think that is, yeah, I mean, that's going to make it stay hard to get enough RAM then probably for a while, right? Let me move forward here with this reader mail too. Guntess Pegless writes, he says, hello, Tom and Dust. 
What are your thoughts on the seemingly ever-growing TDPs of CPUs and especially GPUs in the mid-range and high-end consumer products? Is this a side effect of increased competition between AMD, Intel, and NVIDIA, or the lithography process not being quite up to the performance ambitions and so they're overclocking more, or a mixture of both? A product being pushed way past the most efficient point in the voltage frequency curve does not sit with me well. Big GPU dies with absurd TDPs in combination with thermal cycling really makes me worried about the longevity of said GPUs, which I always used to poo-poo, like, oh, guys, don't worry about it breaking if it uses 300 watts. But I will say, I, mean, I think half of Lovelace, um, not well, soon Lovelace, but half of uh, the 3090 Ti's problems are how hard they're pushing it, and they can't even make a lot of the dies or get enough of the components to make the dang thing because it's a 450-watt one. Like, how much of this is competition do you think and how much of it is just logically they were going to eventually do this but yeah what's competition well i i think one of the things that have thrown a real curveball now is all the ray tracing bits that have been integrated into the gpus because obviously that takes up both space and it, it seems to cause additional constraints on the chips anyhow you think a lot of it is just them making these chips and that have to do much more than they used to is a part of it as well. Yeah, definitely. Because we, we've gone from doing basic 3D stuff some years ago to graphics cards that are now handling video processing, video encoding, decoding. They're, they're accelerators for all kinds of different things, right? They're not just a graphics card anymore. Mm -hmm. So see each one of these little bits that are added, you're making a bigger and bigger chip. Yeah, I think people forget, too, probably uh, NVIDIA's most efficient period of most efficient sup uh, supremacy over efficiency is Maxwell and Pascal, and those stripped mm -hmm. out a bunch of the non-gaming stuff to stay efficient, and it's certainly not what they've decided to do with Ampere, you yeah. know. Um, and when I look at some of the rumors you sent me on today of what RDNA 3 has, I'm like, hmm, RDNA 3 almost looks like Ampere-like except MCM, which is interesting too. So, I, you know, I, a lot of it has to be the competition though, right? I mean, anytime AMD really challenges NVIDIA, they seem to just push power consumption up as high as they can. Well, no. It's the easy way to get more performance, right? Why not if the customers don't complain? Well, let me ask that too. That's something I've had fun asking guests because I, you say it's cyclical, but I, it is to a point. Yeah. I don't think we've ever had... We've had double graphics cards, that's fair, but mm -hmm. those spread out, you know, it's two dies, which makes it easier to cool a surface area, you know. And <laughs> at what point, though, do you think customers will have a problem? I mean, hoppers, I've been told, could be using over 1,000 watts. Now, that's not for consumers, so they'll make it work, I guess, maybe. I don't know, though. That still sounds insane to me, even for enterprise. But, like, Lovelace is supposed to be over 500 watts, or it could be. Sounds like RDNA 3 will be, I've always heard, at least 400 watts for the top one. Do you think people will complain once we get to 500-watt graphics cards, or they'll just, you know, whatever, nope, bring on the 600-watt one? It depends on who you are, right? Because mm -hmm. there's people who just don't care. But now we're in a situation where electricity prices are up pretty much globally, right? Mm -hmm. So that could be one of those reasons where people go, hang on. My hobby is now going to cost me more every time I use my computer as well. Mm -hmm. Every time, which I want to has play always a game. been the case, but this is sure. different. 
but we you know 10 watts not a big deal 100 watts well now it's starting to get a bit <laughs> silly and I, I guess the other problem is going to be how much of these things going to cost with the kind of cooling that is going to cool them i mean a lot of people mm-hmm. are complaining already that you know these things are getting too hot and if we're getting to five six hundred watts without a all-in-one cooler attached to the card are we going to be able to cool these things well, and, and you said earlier in our conversation today, you know, of course, Ampere costs more to make. So, you know, less RAM made up for some of that against AMD. It costs more to make. A lot of it is because of the cooling and the more expensive, you know, power components required for those chips, mm. right? Like that's what made it so expensive. That was something that I, I covered extensively, at least around your Ampere's launches, like these things cost way more to make than you'd think. I know they're using a cheaper node, a little cheaper node, but Silicon's not a whole lot of the cost of this card anymore once you have to cool this thing that uses 350 watts. I mean... And then it, they obviously went way beyond to do those coolers as well because it's a completely mm-hmm. different concept to anything that we've at least seen in retail. I'm not sure how they ended up with that, but I know they've been working, at least in the past, with companies like Cooler Master here in Taiwan. They're probably working with some other companies. I guess it was a rumor that Cooler Master made one of the coolers for those cards, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're going to have to find partners that are skillful enough to develop these kind of cooling solutions as well. I mean, it's mm-hmm. easy enough to go to someone like Acetech and say, hey, make us a liquid cooler for our cards, but I'm not sure a lot of consumers are going to go for those. Since we're on the subject, I'm curious what you think about this. Like, AMD is pushing power consumption with RDNA 3, as far as I can tell, and as far as I'm told as well, just not as much as NVIDIA. But how much of an advantage can NVIDIA even have? Like, basically, my understanding is RDNA 3 should at least double performance, um, or at least around there, and NVIDIA's trying to get close to double because they don't have an MCM design, so they're just pushing the power usage up on a gigantic monolithic chip, as they have done so many times in the past. Um, but, you know, making it monolithic, you know, you don't have this... You have to deal with multiple dies that make AMD's die actually bigger. You don't have to deal with what is probably an I.O. die and maybe some V-cache, like, to allow these chips to communicate with each other without losing too much performance from AMD. So all that, all the packaging is, is going to be more expensive for the top RDNA 3 card. But the fact that you have to cool a 500-watt card, do you think that's just going to make it just as expensive to make as the top RDNA 3 card anyways? Mm, I don't know. That That's a tough one to answer. I mean, cooling solutions are obviously not a small part anymore, but they're, they're a smaller part of the cost of the card, right? But the question I have on that is what the AIBs are going to think because mm-hmm. you're going to get to a point where they're going to go hang on this is now costing us a lot of extra money and uh, maybe we aren't going to be making graphics cards anymore at least not these high-end ones because there's not enough profit mm-hmm. to be had out of it yeah which was a major issue with Ampere already yeah from what AIB said yeah exactly they they're some of them claimed they couldn't make a profit on those cards at the MSRP uh, you know, we're we're talking about pricing when it what it takes to what differentiates products, what actually makes them cost more or less. You did recently write an article. Uh, it's on Tech Power Up 
mm -hmm. know, explaining Z690 motherboard costs, because that was another time where people were like, oh, but the motherboard costs this much more. And, and you did even point out to me in, you know, private discussions, like a lot of the things on that motherboard aren't as expensive as you'd think they'd be to like make no. it more premium. Like what made you want to write that article and like just, you know, Tell us a bit about it too, because it is a, and I think it was, it became pretty popular on Tech Power Up. I think it's, it is an important thing that people need to start understanding. Well, the, I wrote an article about all the Z690 boards that were launching first, like a brand up kind of thing. And there was a lot of people complaining and going, oh, why are these expensive and blah, blah, blah. So I asked around a bit because, yeah, motherboard prices have been going up. But a lot of people seem to think it was because of PCI Express 5.0. But mm. that is not the costly part of these boards. And that, that's what I wanted to dig into. Of course, the different PCB materials going from PCI Express 3 to 5, yeah, that's going to add some cost. But we're talking cents here on a motherboard, not dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Likewise, when AMD went from PCI 3 to 4, this is just a slight extension of that because it's using very similar PCB materials and designs and things, right? So that's not the big cost. But there's obviously some more cost going into the board development itself because it's a little bit more complicated making these things, right, for the mm -hmm. uh, engineers. The things that came up is that the new CPU sockets are expensive because it's uh, very limited suppliers for now, and apparently stock seems to have been a little bit limited as well. So we've kind of doubled or maybe even tripled the cost compared to LGA 11.5, whatever, mm -hmm. you know. Whatever the last one was. Yeah. So that that's one reason of why the cost has gone up. Uh, chipset is obviously not Intel's, uh, at least list price, right? That That's a dollar more for the chipset, so that's not it. But it turns out that they've changed the power management, or power design, not power management, but uh, they, they went from what they called IMVP8 to IMVP9.1, and that changed uh, from using cheaper components for the power regulation and that seems to be one of the main contributing factors beyond the fact that people are now expecting bigger, more powerful power regulation in general on the board. We've gone from like well, five, six phases to like 20 on the high-end boards now, right? Mm -hmm. So that in itself... <laughs> yeah, I remember when like four to six phases or something was standard and now yeah. it's dozens of them. Yeah, I mean, e e even the sort of fairly basic boards from a lot of companies have like 12 power phases now. Mm -hmm. So e if that's a doubling in cost per power phase over uh, Z590 boards, that's going to be a lot of money. Some of these sort of things, people don't think about that as cost to a product. Mm -hmm. It and sounds like, you know, a lot of it is us asking for it to at least sound. It's up for debate yeah. if that even makes the uh, motherboard any better, but at least sound more premium. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the extra cost for like PCIe and sockets is it's not really the, the cost itself, but it was like, oh, now we've got to make sure our lines can manufacture these motherboards with PCIe 5.0 in bulk. I think you said that to yeah, me in that, addition that to shortages. Yeah, that was another issue because with PCIe Express 5.0, we went from what is actually hand-mounted slots mm. to SMT-mounted things. That's all done by machine, and they had to invest in some new machinery for this as well. I mean, I guess you haven't been to one of these motherboard factories. No. 
So on one floor you have the SMT machines, it's like clean room, everything, and then you go down one floor or two floors and it's a room full of, well, <laughs> excuse the expression, but Filipino ladies who are sitting there placing components by hand. Mm -hmm. And then it goes through a soldering machine and yeah. So it, it, it's a very stark reality between the part where the machines are doing everything and where you have all this sort of bigger parts on the motherboards that has so far been done by hand. Now these companies who have had a very fixed way of manufacturing things for years have had to move to new, more expensive equipment. You need to get pick and place machines that can pick these bigger components. And then you need to have different sort of machines for both inspection and um, sort of the whole process of making these boards. So there, there's a lot of hidden costs that they're obviously going to charge to the customer. Right. It sounds like a lot of this is, I don't know if temporary is the right word, but they had hurdles they had to go through that have increased prices or that made them feel they needed to charge more to justify all this work. But that's not permanent stuff, it sounds like. No, no, of course not. I mean, the, the, the problem you have with a lot of these companies, they want to recuperate their investment as quickly as possible, right? So... If, if they buy a new machine, they're trying to get the cost back in the first year or so if they're selling something using this machine. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it's done that way in Asia, but it seems to be the way they do things here. Whereas like in the Europe or the US, they would spread this over the life of the product. Yeah, yeah I mean, I remember in the automotive industry, a lot of our tooling and, and a lot of that, you know, even just minor tooling could be $50,000. Yeah. But, you know, we'd, we would especially if it was an important high volume product we'd say yeah we'll make the money back in five years or or we'll we'll be a hundred percent sure we make the money back in five years but we'll probably do it sooner than that you know yeah and that that's just not the mentality here it is we need to make this money back as soon as possible mm -hmm. so you end up with certain things that ends up costing more than it really should because these companies are trying to recuperate the cost quickly Today's video is brought to you by CDKoffer.com. Whether you're looking to get good deals on PlayStation, Microsoft Office Professional, or both Windows 10 and Windows 11 operating systems, CDKoffer.com has you covered. CDK is a long-term sponsor of Moore's Laws Dead, and that's because they have been consistently providing me and Moore's Laws Dead's fans with a service that I think PC gaming just needs reasonable operating system and Microsoft Word prices. We all have to use these products and we don't need to overpay for them if you use cdkeyoffer.com. And you know what? I know I will be using these products later this year for a new Raptor Lake or Zen 4 system most likely. And I will do so knowing that, well, they're all legitimate keys and they are going to be delivered to me quickly and promptly when I buy them. Don't waste any more money than you need to this year. Use the link in the description or on screen to go to cdkeyoffer.com. And when you're there, whatever you decide to buy, make sure you use one of these offer codes. Broken Silicon gets you 25% off all Windows products and Dyson gets you 3% off everything else. And this really does help the channel. It helps you save money. Use these offer codes, use the link, go to cdkeyoffer.com today. Well, Zabbito3 writes in and he says, Hello, guest and Tom. I was reading the article provided with this post by Lars and I was wondering how things like higher pricing on sockets and PCIe 5.0 are going to affect the low end motherboard pricing. 
Will pricing ever reach a point where it is competitive with modern AM4 motherboards? Does DDR5 also raise the pricing on the motherboards as well? Finally, do you think that AM5 motherboards will have similar pricing to Alder Lake motherboards, or will it be more in line with AM4 motherboards that are currently available now at lower prices or usually? Well, I, I think it's overblown how much cheaper AM4 motherboards are than LGA1700. They not that much cheaper. That, that depends the on the SKU, right? Yeah. But yes, I think AM5 boards are going to be a little bit more expensive. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, DDR5 doesn't really make a difference. Mm -hmm. we, we're talking a few cents, if anything, again. Yes, the, the, there's going to be these companies charging extra for the slots to start with, but give it a year or so, and that's not going to be an issue anymore. That's what it seems like, right? Like we have, again, there was stagnation. How long were we on PCIe 3.0 and DDR? I mean, we got, we were on, yeah. we're st <laughs> I'm still using DDR4 in my system today from 2016 because I, it <laughs> was 60 bucks for 3200 megahertz back then, and I've overclocked it. And I see no need. I, I'm just going to wait until DDR5 is reasonable, I think, and upgrade to one of those platforms. But we're going through so many new standards, 4.0, 5.0. We're already talking about 6.0. You know, DDR5 is now out. A lot of these costs that have made these things expensive, it's not like they are going to stay, though. It seems like no. we're just upgrading and in a year, actually, motherboards could get drastically cheaper, like I remember them being in the, like, the Ivy Bridge days and such, right? Well, there, there's always the transition period, right? We've seen this every time we move on to platform, like big platform changes like this. Every mm -hmm. time we change memory, the memory prices for the new stuff is like crazy. Maybe not as bad as for DDR5, but not far off anyhow. So yeah, th this is a transition period, and I think that's the way we have to look at it. Are we going to get as cheap motherboards as before? I, I can't really say, but, you know, probably not, because we're, again, asking for more. I mean, you, you look at the enthusiast community, they're asking mm -hmm. for more and more of everything as well. We, we've gotten more bling on motherboards. I mean, I, I as we talked earlier, I'm blaming Asus for this. They started a lot of the bling stuff with their ROG series. The other guys tried to copy them. We've had some tacky stuff. We've had some nice stuff. And, you know, it, all these things cost money, right? Someone has to pay for everything from the molds. I mean, you, you're looking at a plastic mold. That's 50,000 US dollars. Mm -hmm. Okay, that can make a million units of something, which it probably never will do in a lot of these cases. But even yeah. so, I mean, all these boards have those um, shields now around the I.O., well, not shields, the, what do you call those? <laughs> the ducting or whatever from mm -hmm. uh, the MOSFET heat sinks onto the I.O., right? That got to cost something. You have all the uh, M.2 heat sinks. That's a bit of aluminum. It, aluminum doesn't cost that much, but even that has gone up in price, right? Mm -hmm. So you have all these little bits of something that costs money that is adding to the cost of motherboards. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean... The PC, I, again, the PC gaming renaissance, I think, really was when AMD and NVIDIA were at their height in competition, you know, with each other, with like GCN versus Kepler. And, and obviously before that, when AMD was actually taking performance crowns and you, and you had this back and forth. And then that made, you know, these the situation where actually PC gaming was getting close to the price of building a new console, surprisingly, which never used to be the case, you know. 
And then this PC Master Race thing happens where people are just like, look at my godlike PC where I make fun of console players. And it's like, I, I think you can understand though why a gamer will pay $10 more. He's already spending a grand. He's going to pay $10 more for the motherboard that looks nicer. If it doesn't sure. really help anything. And yeah. it just kept going up and up and up a little bit. And then shortages hit. And now that extra $10 is an extra 50 And I think yeah. it's almost like PC, the PC Master Race mentality is caught up uh, and there's some blowback now, you know, sure. all these extra things you've been asking for that used to just be five bucks more. They're not five bucks more anymore. No, no, no. I fully agree because we, we, we asked for this bling and we got this bling and now it's coming back to hurt us. I mean, I'm not saying all of it is bad. I mean, we, we do sure. have much nicer looking motherboards these days. They're color coordinated mostly and, you know, they look slick. We, we had some terrible looking motherboards for years. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, you go back and look at the late 2000s, just like ugly brown and orange colors for some reason. Well, and some random purple bits or orange bits here and there, and mm -hmm. it's just sort of co color coordination. Nah. I think we both agree then pricing will definitely decrease, at least to a certain extent next year. But I want to kind of move on to this worry I think a lot of people have, including myself. EEBRV writes in and he says... Promise cost reductions year over year tend to drive parts end of life just due to margin erosion. Any thoughts on how the industry can get away with that? All that happens is they redesign a similar widget with slightly different performance parameters, charge more, and the cycle begins again. This is in reference to commodity parts like op amps, logic, high RDSON, RDSON, uh, power FETs, small signal FETs, uh, BJTs, gate drivers, transceivers, and etc. And I, I think. And I'm just kind of tacking on to this, you know, how do you think we will see any pricing tiers that we're at now go to a lower tier again? Like, or, or are we are the tiers we're at now? Are we stuck there? Because it does start to feel more and more like it's like, well, we'll look at all this new stuff. You know, we've doubled performance and it's like, yeah, well, five nanometer costs 70% more than uh, seven nanometer. And now you're adding all these high end components. Like, like well, people are used to this cycle, as I brought up earlier, of things getting cheaper for the same thing. Like, how much of this can go back to actually getting cheaper for the same thing, whereas people are just pushing for the max everything, and it's just moving lower up in products into mid-range pricing over and over? Uh, I think the parts mentioned, they're mostly passive components, right? So they should probably come down in price at some point at least but right now the issue there is that we have the ev industry that is also eating up a ton of these components right so there's a competition with that right yeah it's true so i i saw just today that toshiba is building a new fab in japan just for making more of these type of components mm -hmm. so obviously <laughs> that that's the other thing that the fab construction has to catch up so i think we might be in for a couple of years of where all these sort of components that people don't even think about are going to be more pricey. But uh, we, we've seen a lot of announcements of factories, both in Europe, in Asia, in the US, that are sort of being built right now, or is in planning stages at least, because they have woken up and realized that, well, the just-in-time system doesn't work, the EV market is exploding, more and more countries are sort of putting an end to the petrol engine for better or worse. Mm -hmm. And we're getting to a point where all these little bits of electronics are becoming more and more crucial in mm -hmm. all kinds of things, right? Well, yeah, and I mean, that was something 
I, I remember talking about a lot about a year ago, you know, when the automotive production line started shutting down, even for combustion engines at General Motors here, because, well, everything has a computer yeah. and people were saying, well, why can't AMD just buy more capacity or do this? And I'm like, you guys understand the computer in one of those General Motors vehicles or Tesla is like. One percent of the cost of the car, and if it shuts down the line, GM will just pay ten times more for that chip. That's they're going to yeah. buy that capacity, N not AMD guys. Yeah, and that that's what people don't seem to realize. It's not necessarily the cutting edge stuff that's the issue. It's a lot of the well, very <laughs> sort of common stuff that is producing the billions. Mm -hmm. That that's where their issues now. I, it does sound like we agree, though. It will catch up, though. Like this idea, I think it's going to start to feel like an endless rising. It has to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, well, at least if we're going to continue with the, the way we're building things. Otherwise, we're going to have to look at different ways of, well, both purchasing and building technology in general. Mm -hmm. it, it's the two options we have. Either we build more fabs, we make more of these things that we need to make our electronics, or, well... <laughs> Maybe people have to choose not to have a car or have a computer or whatever. Or we need to change our upgrade cycle. Because mm -hmm. I think that that's also something, especially in the mobile space, we, we have had this yearly upgrade cycle. And I think that is kind of hurting the electronics industry in a way as well, because there, there's too many of these devices being churned out. And I'm curious how many of them are sort of ending up in a landfill or at least being recycled without having even having been sold mm -hmm. right and, and and like there's obviously the environmental concern aspect but another concern is just well yeah but a lot of these use rare materials and they're just being thrown away like how are we going to make more eventually we're, we're literally using up some of these metals uh mm -hmm. that are priced a certain way with the assumption not taking into account that you can run out yeah and, and even more so when china now has decided to kind of put a hold on a lot of these things and who they decide to sell to. Mm -hmm. So now we have a lot of other countries waking up and going, hey, maybe we need to open up mines again to mine these things that we thought were kind of useless 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years ago even. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note then, I guess I want to start transitioning to another discussion, but a, a kind of a thing I just thought of here though is I have heard people within amd say long term we, we kind of want to make not not the entry in terms of like really weak but like the lowest end cards we make we kind of want to stop at like three or four hundred dollars and we want the used market to take up everything below that how much of that almost needs to happen so you don't keep wasting more <laughs> materials on low-end products you know like i'm not justifying it at all i'm just saying it is like god there are so many uh, cards that just get thrown away that it's like maybe it'd be better someone does get a you know whatever a 1070 for half the price of a you know whatever the newest thing is instead of getting some useless low-end gpu that's the same performance as a million cards on ebay but at the same time that <laughs> useless low-end card as you call it that's going to be using a third of the power of that three-year-old card mm-hmm so there's a trade-off there as well. What am I going to consider here? Do I buy a second-hand card that's drawing three times as much power? Do I even care about that? Or do I buy a new power-efficient card that is more suitable for my needs? Mm -hmm. But then again, 
if we look at AMD and Intel, maybe they will start putting better GPUs in their CPUs instead. So we we don't need these low end cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think that will happen within a, few, a couple of generations. I mean, obviously, it is always happening. They're always getting better, but I think there's just this threshold of performance you want to hit um, that yeah, just doesn't enough. Yeah, we've never really hit that. Mm-hmm. At least not economically without some ridiculous thing that makes it more expensive than a whole getting a whole card anyways. Like, yeah, it, no, does, yeah. it feels like things will get better, but it, it also just seems like right now is an awkward period. Yeah, very much so. But um, um, what I meant was like APUs or GPUs inside the CPU, that, that's never met the sort of requirements even for the most basic gamers most of the time, unless you're playing sort of Windows-only games. I, I've seen card games and that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, not, nothing Minesweeper. 3D. <laughs> yeah, whatever. So that kind of stuff. So there, there's that problem as well, that these guys need to figure out how to provide better integrated graphics in their chips. I don't think Rembrandt, people keep talking about it, is really that level yet. I mean, it's it's much stronger than the previous APUs they've made, but it's like, of course it has. They've been using Vega graphics for <laughs> three years in their APUs. You know, it still doesn't feel like they've really pushed it that extra mile to me, though. Would you agree? No, I don't think so either. And every time they come out and claim something, well, then the goalpost moves. Mm-hmm. Since the requirements got higher for every new game that comes out. So that that's sort of the downside of that whereas say a console for example the game developers knows that this is the graphics capability of this and that what we that is what we're targeting our games for and they know the limitations right mm-hmm. but when they're making a game for pc well <laughs> they can put that as anything they want right some games come out brand new and they're okay in a three or four year old gpu and some stuff comes out and it barely runs on the fastest thing you can get mm-hmm and I think there, there's something in that, too, where the game developers have to consider, you know, what are we doing? How much do we want to drive the looks and the feel of the game over the cost in terms of hardware required to play this game at a reasonable... I would say they're taking that into perspective and consideration more and more every year, though, right? I mean, it, it feels like to me in the 2000s, they were always pushing for more, or almost always. And now... A lot of develop. I, I, I'm not seeing the graphics explosion every year that we saw back then. Some of that obviously is because there's diminishing returns, but some of it does seem to be that they don't feel the need to push it as hard anymore, so they can get it onto more systems. It, it feels like a lot is also console ports, so they have already that lower <laughs> kind of graphical setup, but then they limit that to 60 frames a second on a PC, and they don't have to do too much work kind of to make it work on foster hardware i mean the only thing i will say about that is there are pc port issues to console too where you can see games like dying light or cyberpunk where they clearly built it for pc first or watchdogs legion is another example actually almost every time it's an example it's because it has nvidia tech inside of it <laughs> and they're just like yep all right we designed this for a 3070 now we're gonna throw it on the consoles and it runs in 1080p wait what is, and it's like yeah you turned up ray tracing <laughs> to a level that's ridiculous for the consoles you just turn that down and run fine so the only thing i will say i know I, it's very clear you're like an exclusively pc gamer i think right yes. or very close to that and yeah, yeah it's like i don't know if this makes you feel better but pc uh, console gamers are getting shafted in the same way every now and then uh, i'm sure it happens i'm not saying it's not but it's just a lot of the console ports seems to be limited to 60 frames a second regardless of the kind of hardware you run it on 
whereas a game that was originally planned and built for PC, you, you get better hardware and you get more performance out of it kind of thing. That That's what I'm more meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me start moving into like the OEM uh, and more business relationship side of things here. So I know you worked both for AIBs and, mm-hmm. you know, working with reviewers and then also the other side of it, been someone who works with websites or magazines, I guess, right, that yeah. review these things. Uh, Beefish writes and he says, I'm really excited to talk to someone with an in-depth knowledge in the industry. I understand that any of the following are sensitive or if you're not comfortable speaking about it, but what areas of the supply chain have really been the bottlenecks for the past couple of years and how are AIB OEM relationships different between AMD and NVIDIA? <laughs> I to answer this. I mean, I have to admit, I haven't really dealt a lot with NVIDIA lately. Uh, mm-hmm. Something I've sort of been pointing out in some forums, what what I've been hearing, and yeah, this is not first-hand experience, but when uh, AMD were getting ready with Ryzen, they went around to all the motherboard manufacturers, they handed them a handful of CPU samples, they gave them some documentation, they gave them some chipsets and said, hey, please make us some motherboards. And the mm-hmm. board makers were like, huh? Because when Intel is doing this, or at least traditionally what Intel has done, they turn up, they have a bunch of FAEs with them, they have a whole stack of white papers and manuals and everything. They give them um, reference boards to base their designs around and everything, so they can already test things. They get a stack of CPUs, like, you know, a few trays of CPUs. So that that whole experience is why we ended up with a bunch of kind of cruddy x370 and uh, mm-hmm. b350 motherboards because amd had sort of a different partnership with the board makers mm-hmm. and i'm not sure if it works the same on the graphics side to be honest i don't have that much recent insight on it but what i do know is that nvidia have this kind of attitude of we're the world's best and we're the leader and you know mm-hmm so I, I think that the relationship with NVIDIA is probably a lot tougher for these companies than with AMD, who seems to be a little bit more of a humble company. I mean, I've definitely heard the same from people. It's, you know, universal, nothing's ever NVIDIA's fault, and you better give them what they ask for exactly. That, that's probably very possible. I mean, I haven't had the best experience with NVIDIA as a journalist in the past uh, I'm not sure if I should be telling this story, but uh, when I helped start Trusted Reviews, I was the first employee there. We ended up uh, in a situation where certain media had gone to NVIDIA and they told them, you know, don't work with these guys. They're, you know, they're not going to be around in like three months and blah, blah, blah. And these were sort of kind of what at the time was sort of hobby sites in the UK. Mm -hmm. They, they grew and became some of the bigger publications there. But uh, obviously we had connections since both me and uh, my boss at the time. We came from uh, the magazine side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're talking to all different companies and NVIDIA were stonewalling us. And we, we couldn't figure out what was going on. We found out that these other guys had gone and talked to them behind our back. And it took six months before NVIDIA came around and apologized and said, okay, we, we didn't realize you were going to hit it off and blah, blah, blah. And, but we only found out about this other part a year or two later. Mm-hmm. 
So that kind of stuff happens in the industry too, which I think is actually quite disgusting that some sites are so afraid of the competition that they will go and talk smack to vendors about their competition. Yeah, I've never heard someone talk about that. I mean, that you gave one example there, but you've been doing this for so long. I know you know a lot of people. Like, Is that something that happens all the time, though? There's also this thing where the websites are trying to make each other look bad or try to you know, do the types of things that you said happened to you? There, there are, there, let me put it this way, there have definitely been some people like this in the industry. Mm-hmm. So is it common? I don't know, but it happens. Mm-hmm. It's not the only time I've seen something like this, but it's the only time it's affected me in a really bad way. Well, and does it seem like Nvidia's more likely to do these types of things where they black, where they stonewall, they they blacklist people, they 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 play this game? I guess you might say they they seem to have a reputation for not working with certain media. I mean, I, I've introduced people to Nvidia when I was on good terms with them and said, work with these guys because they're good people. It's taken that for them to work with certain publications as well. So I've kind of done the opposite to what some mm. people have done, right? Because I, I guess I've always been one of these people who thinks that, you know, this is a community. We're all interested in the same things and we should be working together. We shouldn't be throwing shit at each other. Yeah, well, you would think that. Though the the question I kind of want to start getting to here is the way, and again, you know, I, people can get mad at me. People can call me a fanboy if you want, but it's like, yeah, whatever, guys. Only NVIDIA came up with GPP. Only NVIDIA came up with, I mean, they did tons of blacklisting around the GTX 480 launches. If anyone talked about its power usage, I mean, that was pretty universal. You know, only NVIDIA gets away with half of the crap they seem to do with, like, Hairworks and PhysX and all of this stuff. So you can call me a fanboy for pointing that out, but I don't see the other people doing that as often. Like, how much of this is just the way they think and the way other people think's working fine? And how much is it like, is AMD... A question I've been starting to ask is AMD at certain points just being the greater fool. Like, I like that they tend to be more trustworthy, but is that ultimately a failure to compete well with NVIDIA? Should, like, this fake MSR, like, NVIDIA just launched a 3080 12 gigabyte without a price. <laughs> and the, the 3050 just flagrantly is not, like, I, I've talked to distributors. If you go to a micro center, most of those... 3050s that are $420. They paid 400 for them. This is not a $250 card. It was never going to be a $250 card. Like how many of these practices are do you think hurting Nvidia actually but they think it's working? And how many of them is it like is AMD just being an idiot by not getting in the mud and fighting fire with fire? And it's an uncomfortable question. I'm not advocating they do it for the people listening, but it's like how many times am I going to see AMD get slapped? And NVIDIA just get away with doing, I think, much more anti-consumer practices before AMD just has to start playing ball. I think NVIDIA just doesn't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that simple. They do what they do, and as long as they're not being taken to court, they don't care. Do you think AMD should start acting that way? Would it be smart for them to? Or do you think it it wouldn't work out, or it is actually in their best interest to keep being... You know, operating in certain ways, you know. Well, if you look at it, some people like the way NVIDIA acts, right? They have a certain community behind them that is cheering them on and going, yeah, yeah, smack them up kind of thing. 
you know, mm. kick the kick the dog or whatever you want to call it. You know, whereas I think AMD has more of a following of people who think they're a nice company and they're, they're supporting AMD because they're not doing these things. But yeah, AMD probably has to become a little bit tougher. Which, of course, again, I think half of the stuff I would never, <laughs> I don't, I don't think half of the stuff Nvidia does actually is smart. I do think it blows back on them a lot, but I don't know if it does enough. You know, <laughs> uh, I do wonder if AMD at a certain point is just being stupid, and we would just have better competition. And again, it's not, it's not good, but it's like how many times do we have to watch this happen? You know, I, I think it's also about the leadership of the companies. I mean, Nvidia's leadership has a certain <laughs> style, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that reflects on the rest of the company, whereas AMD is a bit more low-key. And yeah, there's definitely parts of the business that they really need to show that, you know, we're not the underdog really anymore. Mm -hmm. Which I think they're trying to. Yeah, but they've been living in the shadow of both NVIDIA and Intel for far too many years now. Mm -hmm. But when they have competitive products, they're often quite bad at getting that out there. Mm -hmm. But as for business practices, I really hope they don't become sort of a bad actor in the business. We, we don't really mm -hmm. need that. One, I think, clear example of some of these practices actually finally catching up with NVIDIA is their ARM deal getting squashed so quickly. Like a, a lot of people talk about, you know, well, it's because of this, it's because of this property of the deal and all of that's true. But when I talk to people, it's like, half of it is just the entire industry doesn't trust them. <laughs> like, if it was another company, they may actually let it happen. That's very obvious. I mean, when, when Qualcomm and these guys are going out there and going, uh, this is bad, mm -hmm. that, then you know that their competition is really concerned. That's one thing I will say is, no, I don't. I think, especially more and more right now, NVIDIA is getting punished for some of the ways they've acted in the past, finally. But, um, Grass writes in, hey, Tom and guest, from conversations on the Discord, I was reminded about all the times NVIDIA has gone and burned some bridges with partners. Off the top of my head, I can remember in 2003, Microsoft and NVIDIA feuded over the OG Xbox GPU pricing. Uh, Microsoft launched the 360 with ATI and has never used NVIDIA since. If you ask, and, and that's true. If you ask people at Microsoft, yeah, they were not very happy. And with a lot of the things that were going on then. And then he says, in 2008, famously, NVIDIA released some terrible BGA pads on laptop GPUs that a greater than 50% failure rate on Apple, Dell, and HP. They sued, and NVIDIA goes and sues them back. Apple never uses NVIDIA again. And then in 2012, I think I actually had one of those laptops that broke. In 2012... <laughs> Well, not really a partner. Linus Torvald flips NVIDIA the bird on TV for absolutely ruining laptop support on Linux. 2018, NVIDIA pisses off Tesla. Elon goes to build his own computer vision chip. This is not to mention all the times they've done shady backroom things with reviewers, with consumers. And NVIDIA's market cap continues to grow. I'm wondering, do they have nine lives? And do you think there's such a thing as a bridge too far? Some partner or some deal where if NVIDIA burnt this bridge, they could never come back from it. And I say this not because I hope it happens. I own NVIDIA stock, Crass does, not me, I, <laughs> but but more, I kind of worry it might. And and I guess this is kind of just playing into what we were just talking about, you know. At what point do people not put up with some of this stuff anymore? I think as they're changing as a business, as they become 
a company that is doing more and more sort of enterprise stuff, they need mm. to be a lot more careful how they tread, right? Because if they mm -hmm. piss off the big enterprise corporations, they're going to be out of there. doesn't matter how good their hardware is because mm. these companies have a very different way of working, right? So I think that that's the part where they need to be careful because they, they're investing in more and more enterprise-level technology, right? Yeah, because like if you think of things NVIDIA's done in the past uh, with Fermi, they completely threw TSMC under the bus with their Fermi issues and like said, oh, it's TSMC. They can't make chips correctly. Meanwhile, they were making tons of AMD chips on the same node just fine without the same failure rates and crazy power usage. And ultimately, it's because, from what I've read, NVIDIA did not follow the design rules. TSMC told them, hey, you have to follow this if you want it to perform optimally. And they didn't. And then they blamed TSMC. Like... That pro they, certainly they can't get away with that anymore. And actually, there's a whole thing you could talk about and what I've heard about the relationship between TSMC and NVIDIA is now that TSMC is the bigger one or the more relied on one, I think, than NVIDIA at this point. It, it, it sounds like, yeah, you, you're kind of saying how they acted with TSMC back then with Fermi. If they tried to throw one of these major enterprise customers under the bus, like in some server issue, that would be when they finally, you know, really get smacked in a way that maybe they have to learn from their mistakes. Well, first of all, that corporation is never going to work with them again. They're going to tell all their partners not to work with them again. And this is going to be the thing that definitely ends up reflecting on their share price because these kind of things don't stay quiet for too long, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what's going to hurt NVIDIA big time compared to anything else they've done, right? It's funny, you know, when I talk to people in enterprise they like NVIDIA products. They, of course, love the stability of a lot of their professional accelerators. But a lot of them say, man, if we could switch to AMD, they're just so much easier to talk to. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I think it is interesting to think about how they were kind of just a bull in a China shop trying to make the best graphics, you know, you know, just steamrolling forward, pushing people out of the way. But at a certain point, there's only so much graphics market share you can take. There's only so many people you can push around. And it does seem like, yeah, if you look at self-driving and all these other things, that it, it, it might, yeah, it might actually be catching up with them now, though, when they try to become bigger than, like, it, that it might be very hard for them to become an Intel if they keep acting that way. Well, the, the other problem as well, it's very hard to purchase some of their products if you want to work with their embedded type products. Mm -hmm. They they pick and choose the customers, it seems. And I think that is the kind of thing that will also come back and bite them in the ass in the end. Because if you're too choosy with your customers, you end up kind of the situation with uh, Tesla, right? Where they go and do their own thing. And I think we might see this from other automakers as well, because we're seeing more and more of those companies now announcing that they're going to be making their own chips. Mm-hmm. And that could possibly be because NVIDIA has been too picky and choosy. You know, I, I think if we're going to talk about practices that you can be critical of, we have to bring up Intel for a second just to prove <laughs> we're not Intel fanboys. Well, how do you think the industry sees Intel now? I mean, obviously about 10, 15 years ago, they were doing crazy anti-competitive things like literally paying Dell not to sell AMD chips. It's crazy. How does the industry see Intel now? Right, because I do think there's a very big difference between the way NVIDIA acts and the way Intel acts. Intel has gotten very cocky since uh, Pat took over, though. I know. I have noticed that, yes. 
it, it, it's a really, really very different, well, marketing language from them, mm -hmm. which is quite surprising. They, they've stepped up everything, and I'm not sure that's good either. I don't think the industry wants a cocky Intel that goes around and beats their chest and goes, hey, we're number one, and everyone else is like in the rearview mirror now, whatever it was he said the other week. Yeah, he said, what, we're going to have unquestioned leadership in a few years, and then he walked that back. He's like, well, maybe not. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, not what anyone wants to come back, I think. It, it doesn't benefit anyone, not even Intel. But at the same time, now there's so much competition from like the ARM market space as well for a lot of these things. So Intel isn't the obvious choice anymore. Mm -hmm. And we're not even talking about AMD then. Well, and my understanding from talking to people that work with Intel too is it's like, yeah, they've done anti-competitive stuff, but they're also at least nice to us, <laughs> you know, and that's why it worked out that people like working with them. And, and that's the that's what I'm saying to people is the differences between like NVIDIA and Intel. Intel at one point did way the crazy anti-competitive stuff at, at the macro scale against AMD, which is what differentiates the things they've done to what NVIDIA's done. But at the same time, they were nice to people they worked with. Well, at least based on my personal experience, Intel has always been a decent mm. company to deal with they've never sort of tried to stab you in the back or something like that mm -hmm. but yeah it, it really depends on what level you're working with them as well if you're a nobody they treat you like a nobody mm -hmm. so that that's kind of a bit frustrating for some companies as well that are especially startups and things like that that are coming to them and they have ideas and they want to do something intel goes i go talk to our distributor that that's maybe the problem of being a huge corporation though but I, I i think a lot of the not just intel but a lot of the companies in this industry needs to reconsider their customers because mm -hmm. there's a lot of companies that have really interesting ideas out there and they kind of just knock them on the head because they don't get the right support from these companies mm -hmm. and that that applies even more so to all the arm chip guys there's a reason why the Raspberry Pi is kind of the most popular ARM chip out there when it comes to startups and things. Everyone bases their products on it because it's easy to get. They have good support, but it's a so-so product, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But if I want to buy something else, I have to buy 50 to 100K chips. Mm -hmm. I have to sign a multi-year contract. I need to sign multiple NDAs and I need to get approval by their finance department that takes six to nine months before we even get the documentation. And that's what I've heard too with like AMD right now is they tend to have less of those requirements and things compared to Intel and NVIDIA. Yeah, and th this is kind of a problem to certain companies in the industry and it's killing innovation to a degree, I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I actually want to it just occurred to me, I want to ask this. I was just very critical of Intel and NVIDIA. What can you say critical of AMD, though? Not to try to pretend, you know, be like fair and balanced just to be that. But it's like a lot of their mistakes are their mistakes, though, you know, at yeah, the same time. Yeah, like, very much so. What, what would you, if we were just critical of the others, what would you say AMD's biggest mistakes were over they, the past they, They've been overconfident years? about a lot of their products. Recently, you mean? Yeah. Well, recently, the past crap. What was that graphics card where they put poor Volta? Vega? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's one of the great examples of them sort of being really cocky, and then it turned out to be a turd, kind of. 
again, as we said, they're a nice company, but they, they need to consider that they're still a business and they need to try to win more business and they need to be, I guess, more supportive of their big customers. Mm-hmm. Because likewise, when the first uh, Ryzen laptops were being made, that was the same kind of thing. They turned up at a few companies, handed over a few bits and said, hey, good luck. And yeah, these guys don't like that. They they want hand-holding, especially the Taiwanese companies. They want FAEs they can call up at <laughs> in the middle of the night if it so is that they're you know, having some problem with their designs and they need a different level of support that I don't think AMD always gives them. Mm-hmm. So if they if they want to try to win more market share, they need to take better care of the partners. You know, and one of my guests was um, someone very high up in the decision making at like specking out laptops at a major OEM. And we were talking about you know, you know, like like one of the biggest, you know, like someone like an HP or Lenovo or something like and it was he made it very clear. It's like, no, we want to use AMD. It's just Intel literally like has doubled the documentation in design mm-hmm. handholding and they will help you co-design a laptop. And if you just throw Renoir or Cezanne at us, you know, we go, uh, yeah, we like it, but like we already have this whole thing specced out. Can you like, where do I put this? What voltage does? And it's like that. That's a reason Intel has it, a laptop is the whole thing. It's not just the chip, you know. Yeah. And Intel's been very good at doing that. And, and Intel seems to help with sort of third-party suppliers as well for certain components and things, whatever is needed. So AMD doesn't seem to have some of those partnerships either where they can bring a whole solution to these companies and say, hey, if you use all these parts, that will be, you know, reducing your workload by half Mm -hmm. in just sourcing the components and figuring out what goes with what, right? Yeah, I mean, which uh, eventually does just turn into a cheaper laptop too. You know, I think a lot of people look at Intel versus AMD laptops and they'll go, what AMD, you know, uses less silicon. The AMD laptop should be cheaper. And it's like, yeah, but how much went into designing the AMD laptop versus Mm -hmm. the Intel one? That's why the Intel one's cheaper. Intel has changed since they stopped. Well, since they reduced their IDFs around the world, Mm -hmm. but, they they used to do one in Taiwan every year, and they used to be at Computex here every year. And they turned up with, like, ready-made notebooks, ultrabooks, whatever it was at the time. Showed them on stage and said, hey, you come to us, we'll give you the whole bomb on this thing. We'll give you all the sort of component deals. And you can take this and you can change it to whatever you want. But you can build this exact notebook piece by piece and just put your own chassis around it. I, I never heard of AMD doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like when it comes to like criticism or like what do we think AMD should do, it's some of the cockiness is fun, I guess. You know, and I think their presentations now are the most fun to watch for sure. Like, <laughs> my God, I don't know what's happened to NVIDIA press conferences. They are just the a slog for three hours where there's like a third of it is anything interesting i guess they're trying to become a little bit more corporate but it's gotten too boring yeah and i think amd's that level of showmanship good people will Mm -hmm. actually watch your youtube videos you know but but i do think these kind of things needs to be interesting right otherwise people aren't going to pay attention and they're not going to watch it 
watch the cockiness though until you get to the support level of your competitors is probably yeah. the biggest thing we can say because it, there is and at a certain point you do have to just say well that's that's arrogance though that it, like you make this really great chip like even back when they had you know the first um athlons they're like now everyone use it and they just walk yeah. away and it's like but they they yeah they need to follow through and deliver the end customer product with their mm -hmm. partners it's not enough that you make a good chip Right, because you have competition. Everyone's making at least okay chips. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> you can't just be the best. You have to do a, a better job of making you know, everything else that goes into making someone use it. I mean, I think they are getting better at that, though, don't you? Uh, well, they, they seem Maybe to have done Maybe not. A lot. You tell me. <laughs> well, looking at the desktop platform, they, they seem to have definitely stepped up the game on the second and third gen well third gen but the second and third gen of motherboards at least for ryzen for am4 right they they mm -hmm. seem to have stepped up the game and provided a lot better support to the motherboard makers laptop side from what i hear it's still a bit so-so um, but getting better i mean the, the biggest problem there seems to be supply where they promise and promise and can't deliver but that's a different problem and I guess that that might be because their bigger customers are being prioritized over the sort of the, well, smaller mid-range sort of notebook manufacturers. Mm -hmm. We're we're kind of starting to touch on these subjects. I'm just going to skip ahead here to more of the launching discussion. Like the remedy writes in and he says, "Hello, Tom and Mr. Nilsson. You may not be able to answer this, but how much do geopolitics play a role in potential pricing of silicon and its end products? Do manufacturers and fabs price these unknowns into their margins? I only ask because of the current heat between the East and the West right now. And thanks for coming on. Very much appreciate any and all insight you can give. East and West, uh, I don't think that's the concern because obviously some of the Chinese companies might consider this an issue, but... I mean, Taiwan is Taiwan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, it's an island in more than one way. I mean, th this is where a lot of the fabs sit. Okay, some things are made in Singapore or whatever as well. But Taiwan seems to be a very neutral player in all of this. Mm -hmm. So, no, I, I don't see, at least not this island, as caring too much about the geopolitics. They're doing their thing and they're happy doing their thing. And they want to carry on doing their thing and being Taiwan. You know, one thing I saw, though, for, like, graphics card pricing, like, why on some models does, like, there are some AIBs that just clearly have more expensive products half the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had it explained to me uh, by one of my contacts, or he, at least what he said, is that a lot of them do their assembly in places with less tariffs, and so that reduces what they can effectively, you know, price some of their stuff at. You know, like, isn't that a major factor, though, like where a lot of people were doing all of their assembly in mainland China, and so they had to, they were hit by more tariffs than some of the other AIBs were on some of these graphics cards recently? Mm, uh, well, that that's, I guess, the politics issue, right, between the mm -hmm. U.S. and China right now. But that doesn't affect countries outside or that aren't the U.S., Oh, you're saying in pricing's up in a lot of those too, so. Yeah, but I, I think that's a fairly minor issue. I, graphics cards, there's tariffs on those. I know power supplies and some things, but I didn't know graphics cards. Yeah, they were hit with tariffs, I think, mid or right. something last year. They started to get hit by a lot of the same ones. But a lot of that is then 
quite easily circumvented. They ship them to Taiwan first and then ship from here to the US. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's actually been happening a little bit for sure. Well, so I guess, you know, there isn't a lot of consideration for this and is what you're saying, I guess. And I would agree that clearly, I think everyone thought everything would just be hunky dory and we don't need to worry about any of that stuff anymore. But do you, you don't see that as maybe a a weakness in the industry of considering maybe things could go south in a few ways in a few areas could yes for sure definitely i mean the current situation isn't really that bad i would say mm -hmm. right now it's what i guess we should call tensions but if it would go beyond that then it could get bad really quick mm -hmm. i mean e imagine china even if they don't invade taiwan they decide to blockade taiwan right which is much more likely than you know invading yeah that that would be a huge issue it would be impossible to ship from here and then what then taiwan is dead they sit there you know well another thing i've thought of though i mean like forget invasion like the fact that so much relies on taiwan i mean what if a natural disaster <laughs> happens you know like are all of our eggs in one basket in a really dangerous way like forget geopolitics like that's just dangerous in general no yeah sure i mean and taiwan is not exactly a stable nation in that sense i mean mm -hmm. just today there were five earthquakes in shinju where some of these fabs are it's a lot of tsmc stuff are there luckily mm -hmm. it's holidays here now so because it's uh, lunar new year so i i presume not everything was up and running. I didn't see any reports of anything, at least in the news here. But the the interesting thing here, which I should have mentioned as well, is the chip making industry is kind of daily news here. There, you don't see that in other countries in the same way. Mm -hmm. It's like normal daily newspaper papers here. They have a well, or online at least. They have a section about sort of this is just normal business news here where they report on tsmc and all these companies and um, there was another company the other day that makes uh, silicon wafers right uh, what are they called uh, global wafers mm -hmm. so that that they they're one of the biggest producers of silicon wafers in the world after a couple of behind a couple of japanese companies and th those are companies you don't hear about normally, but here is just like normal business news. And as soon as there's an earthquake or a drought or any sort of natural disaster, those are the companies that end up in the news and it's reported on that, oh, now they're going to lose so, so much business. Or, and it, it's really a concern here. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of been skating along assuming everything will be great forever and we don't need to worry about half of the things we're now realizing we do like do you think some prices could go up because a lot of companies are going to price this risk in and are going to try to diversify their supply chains and like they don't want this type of disruption to ever happen again so they're like hey if we can spend 20 percent more to minimize risk we will but how do you do that that's the mm -hmm. big question i mean <laughs> Obviously, TSMC seems to have been convinced to now build fabs in other parts of the world. They're building stuff in the U.S. now. They're going to build something in Japan. Obviously, not really related to this kind of stuff, but some kind of chip factory together with Sony. They're right. They're going to potentially do something in Europe. There's talks about India. I don't think that's very likely, but mm -hmm. but everyone seems to want to have their own foundries now because all of yeah. a sudden people are getting scared. 
possibly because of some of the rattling by China, but uh, yeah. But he, he even like last year, they had the worst drought here in 56 years. Mm -hmm. And that really affected a lot of things. I mean, some parts of the country had their water supply cut to like three or four days a week. And Taiwan relies entirely on rainwater for the water supply here, apart from some small desalination plants. But that, that cannot supply enough water to all mm -hmm. the factories here. And outside of semiconductors, Taiwan is the biggest screw and fastener manufacturer in the world of all stupid things. No. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, see? But makes sense, though. So you, <laughs> there's a lot of things that are being made here that people don't even know that it's like the biggest manufacturer. Or, and there, there's very small things that could upend things here. I mean, there's typhoons here every year. Mm -hmm. Like there's typhoon season. But I mean, there hasn't been any really bad ones for a few years. But every few years, it's some really terrible ones. And they do a lot of destruction on the island. Luckily, there are some very high mountains in Taiwan that seems to sort of at least slow down the typhoons when they come here, unlike the Philippines, who just get completely flattened. But yeah, there, there's a lot of these things. And of course, people on forums, they quick to go, oh, look, now another flooding or another power outage or blah, 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 just to increase prices. But these are real things that happened. <laughs> I don't know that I, maybe I haven't paid attention to that, but is that what you've seen people say, oh, now there's a flood and this is just their excuse to raise prices? Sometimes, yes. Oh, there's a chemicals leak or something like that. Mm -hmm. And people kind of, I, I think it's partially jokingly, but th there's been so many of these things where there's been a natural disaster and prices have gone up and people kind of are fed up with it. You know... Yeah, I, I <laughs> and I don't and like I said earlier, you know, my friend says, well, prices are supposed to go down. I don't know how to ex like what do you think can be done? Because I think a lot of this is leading to people complaining about the wrong things and attacking companies that aren't the ones actually making it more expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, do you think people are going to learn it all or do you, what, what can be what I mean, like, I'm just like, what can be done at a certain point to just like, guys, no, that really is why it's more expensive. And this thing over here, that's the real problem. Like, what, Education. what can be done to, right, but. But if they're not willing to listen, there's nothing you can do, right? It's mm -hmm. up to them if they want to choose to listen to reason or not. Sarcastro writes in and he says, what's up, Tom and guest? Head nod. The do-it-yourself PC community seems to have a throng of zealots and it's misdominating the conversation of the general zeitgeist. Is the complaining about pricing, fake MSRPs, or other shenanigans making any difference to these companies? From my limited understanding of East Asian cultures, Saving Face seems to be of great importance culturally, but does this factor into the marketing product recalls or admitting serious flaws in a product? It's not Saving Face. You're not allowed to lose face. <laughs> mm. If you have to save face, then it's too late already. Then they don't care anyhow. That, that's something to consider. The, the culture here is... Mm. Yeah, it, it is a hindrance in some ways when it comes to dealing with Western mindsets, at least if we put it that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've worked with people here that are very difficult to work with because you can't have a proper discussion with them. And if you're then coming as a say a distributor or something like that to Taiwan, you want to buy something from a company here and they're not willing to discuss with you because they feel like you're an outsider and you have the wrong opinions or whatever. Even as a journalist here, I've tried to 
make suggestions to companies here and they nod and smile and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then behind your back, they're kind of going, oh, stupid foreigner. And, you know, he doesn't know anything. <laughs> that that happens here. And I mean, I, I guess we do the same thing in our home countries when some people come there and try to convince us about something, right? But back, back to this question, uh, I, I guess some companies care about their end customers, but these are big corporations at the end of the day. How, how much are they going to care? Who are you? I, I'm curious, you know, because th th that is why, like, I've been trying to not justify or normalize higher prices or anything like that, but I'm trying to say, like, but if we complain about the wrong thing, it's only going to get even worse. Like, I, and I don't, it, it seems like there's this treadmill going on where you see every graphics card and product get a bad review because it didn't price what they wanted it to, but half of them were priced away for a reason and half of them <laughs> were not, <laughs> or, you know, and, and is any of this making a difference in general, really is I'm just asking your opinion, like, and, and is any of this you think doing what I'm worried about, you know, actually making the situation even more worse because they're pointing at the wrong thing? Yeah, good question. It's a big I question, mean, but I think you're an interesting person. One of the few people <laughs> I could even have this conversation with. I mean, as you know, I've sort of done work for a lot of the different tech companies here, as we've discussed, and a lot of them, they don't really care about their end user. They care about their customer, which is the distributor. So as long as they keep mm. the distributors happy and the distributors sell the product, that's it. Everyone's happy as far as they're concerned. So the the problem where, where you want to give your feedback as a customer is kind of to the shop where you bought it so they can go back to their distributor and complain and then they bring the feedback back to these companies. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at most salespeople, for example, in Taiwan that works at these tech companies, they're technically what I would call glorified receptionists. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be a little bit rude, but they pick up a phone, they take an order. Mm -hmm. Whereas... To me, a salesperson is someone that's going to try to upsell the customer or they're going to at least try to convince them to buy something else or something more. I mean, I, I have a stupid little example from way back in the days when the Optron launched. Mm -hmm. I worked at MSI in the UK at the time and uh, someone came over from Taiwan and we went around to a lot of big corporations in the, the UK and demoed this board and tried to get some business. No one was really interested until we ended up uh, at a high-performance PC manufacturer called Armari Computers. They're still around these days. And I knew the guys there since I worked at the magazine and I'd reviewed some of their stuff. And the owner said, well, you know, we, we don't really like MSI. We've had some really bad experiences with them in the past, but because it's you, yeah, we'll, we'll buy five boards and test, and if it's good, we'll buy 10 boards a week. And let's say these boards were 200 pounds each. Mm -hmm. They were premium boards back then, like dual socket board. They probably were more. I don't remember exactly the price. And we get back to the office, and I'm, like, really happy. You know, look, these guys agreed to try it out, and, you know... Mm -hmm. And uh, the boss of MSI in the UK, she was like, nope, too small order. Mm. What? But the, these are really expensive boards. But then the sales guy, or one of the sales guys, he, he sold 100 boards for 20 pounds each. It's <laughs> like, but that's the same amount of money. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that, that part didn't click. So Yeah, with, without saying which company it was, the automotive supplier that I worked for, 
that was one of the things that allowed us to start getting so much business is we were wheeling to make less to start the business and yeah, then exactly. try to get more, you know, and a lot of our competitors were just wouldn't even talk about something if you didn't buy 10, like 50,000 parts of this, whatever they're making a year. But the, 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 the part they didn't understand here was the difference between their high end products and their budget products, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that's why a lot of these companies are having trouble selling products as well because their sales don't understand their product. They rather mm -hmm. downsell than upsell. I mean, you, you've seen how many motherboard SKUs these companies have. There's a reason for it because the sales are going to the uh, design department and saying, hey, we need a cheaper model and they make it for them because they have a customer in Indonesia or India or something like that that wants to save 50 cents on a board. Mm -hmm. So then there's a new SKU. So they removed three audio jacks or something like that, or they removed one power face and cut off something else that wasn't so important. So that's why you end up with these sort of 20, 30 SKUs that these companies are doing instead of rationalizing things and trying to upsell mm. the customers. And mass producing something so that it's cheaper anyways to just yeah. have a few models, you mean? Well, it's, it's, I mean, of course, a lot of these boards, you know, there's just they change the connector or something like that. Yeah. And they save a little bit of money, but it's still, you need to have stock keeping for this. You need to have a different production for this. You need to have inventory for everything and support for it. And, you know, it's still a lot of roundabout cost to something like this. And I, I don't think this is even being considered. So instead of having good salespeople that can convince the customers to buy a slightly more expensive product, they sell them something slightly cheaper mm -hmm. because that's what the customer asked for. I am proud to say that Vite Ramen is a sponsor of Moore's Laws Dead. The Vite Ramen Company is an American company that pays its workers fair wages and engineered a tasty, healthy, and cheap meal that you can cook in less than five minutes. And these meals just got tastier with their updated version three of their ramen recipe. Meals aren't really healthy unless you keep coming back to eat the healthy ones. And that's what they've done with these updates to version three. Now is the best time to order some Vite Ramen. So if you're busy, hungry, or just looking for a pre-made meal that isn't expensive, get some nudes sent to you. Click the link in the description and use the code BROKENSILICON to save 10% on your order. This helps me, this saves you money, and this supports a good company. Buy Vite Ramen today. And moving it back to like graphics cards, though, I guess I, I, I literally this is in the back of my head. And I think, again, you're one of the few people I know that I think might have an interesting answer for this. But are bad reviews for graphics cards making any difference? I'm, it's a hard question. People get mad. I even ask the question. But everything being made right now sells anyways, good or bad. You know, how important is that review? Do you think moving forward? forward and, I, and i'm asking because i'm not saying i don't think it is i'm but i am saying if everything sells anyways and you have and especially if you have fanboys that buy anything that their company they like makes i do worry if it's like eroding on like because if that really erodes it's very bad for feedback and getting what we actually want okay what well, one thing that needs to be understood that the taiwanese companies they love winning awards mm -hmm. it's a good review that is like that's the marketing department's bread and butter. Mm -hmm. So yes, good reviews matter. Bad reviews, well, they're bad reviews. And I don't know if they really matter. Because, as you said, most things sell anyhow, and most people don't read reviews. Mm -hmm. 
I also don't know to what extent the feedback actually ends up with people that matters in these companies. Because mm -hmm. as a reviewer, you talk to the marketing department. They have a boss who has a boss who has a boss. <laughs> That's technically how it is. I mean, obviously, I have known a lot of people over the years here, but it's very rare that you end up mm -hmm. talking with people that matters in any of these companies. You might be meeting with some of the people in even higher up in the marketing department are technically nobody at the company. You might meet someone with director as the title, but they're technically someone who reports to someone has, who has three bosses above them before you get to the people that matter in the companies. Mm -hmm. And that, that also makes it tough to get the feedback to the right people. And those people usually don't care as long as they're making money. Mm -hmm. And you also have a sort of company culture here of the boss is always right. So if the boss says something, then everyone claps and <laughs> follows along. So there, there's been a lot of products that have been made because the boss wanted it. The product fails and then they quietly just discontinue that product line. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, then, I don't know. I, I have to be careful I say this because I don't want to, I don't want to misspeak and say something that's not exactly what I mean to say, but it's like, I just do wonder that though, a lot of the reviews, like how much of it is not just t trying to tell the company what you want, but like accepting something and going, you know, at the end of the day, the only way that this is really going to change is based on what people buy. <laughs> and so like if inadvertently your reviews are telling people to always spend more money or that it's okay to act a certain way, I think that's what's, you know, eroding a lot of these practices of honest pricing and stuff that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, I would sort of agree with that, yes. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I don't know what a lot of, again, you were a reviewer, so I think you're someone who can speak about this quite probably with some passion. Like, I, I think a lot of people don't know what to do anymore if nothing is easily <laughs> priced when it comes out and, you know... It's well, not what they said it was going to be, and you have to guess. But I would almost wonder, like, maybe you don't need day one reviews. Maybe you can just wait a week so that you can evaluate the market as a product. I mean, okay, so I, I'm one of the few people around, I guess, these days that are still kind of in the industry that started at a magazine and then went on to working online. When you were doing magazine reviews, there was no day one reviews. There was no such thing because we couldn't publish the magazines in that way. We had set publishing dates, right? It took at least 30 days to produce an issue. So we, it, it was just a non-concern. Mm -hmm. As things have moved online, this whole day one review things has apparently become a thing rather than doing a thorough, proper review. And to sort of get all the information you need, make sure you have the right drivers and all this. So we're seeing a lot of sort of sites that are putting out kind of half-assed reviews, I would say, without mm -hmm. being rude to the industry in general. But it takes a lot of time to test a graphics card, right? It's mm -hmm. not something and I think a lot of people minutes. think more graphs means it's better. It's like, well, but aren't we yeah. supposed to advise people on what the best product is, whether we like it or not? for that sure and and it at this point in a world of shortages and increasing demand and everything as silicon i'm wondering if a good review needs to wait a little bit before they give you advice you know because it's not enough to just say it performs this way but like what if it turns out you can't even buy that one <laughs> you know i mean 
one thing we're not seeing at all anymore is what we used to do back in the days is group tests where you compare multiple brands and multiple versions of the same product against each other. I mean, we used to do 10 or 20 graphics card per group test. Yeah, I remember Tom's Hardware used to do that a lot even just 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, but no, no one does these things anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just not a thing. And if you're getting one product on its own in isolation, what are you comparing with? Yeah, you're comparing with some past products maybe, but a lot of these sites who are reviewing kit, they only get one card from one manufacturer sometimes as well, which might not be a fair sort of presentation of the product as a whole compared to what some other competitors did to maybe made a much better version based on the same chip, right? Because mm-hmm. as we discussed earlier, cooling could be one of those issues where, wow, this car runs really hot and is really noisy, whereas their competitor made a really quiet and cool card. And you just got one bad sample or... Yeah, yeah that too. It was cherry-picked, you know, from, from the other side of it. Well, which also happens, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting, too, because people worry about cherry-picking, complain about cherry-picking, but it's like the way reviews are handled right now, you've you've incentivized these companies to cherry-pick because you rely on them to get a day-one thing. You try to rush it out, so you're probably not testing multiple of them. You know, cherry-picking wouldn't be a thing if people didn't set up the entire review process to favor cherry-picking going really well for a company. But this is also why I think we're seeing at least some publications buying their own samples. Yes, but that, which that's is good. not that's yeah, but it's not how it should have to be, right? Hmm. And it's not how it was. I mean, back in the days, you you contacted a PR company, and obviously they got the sample for you, and they didn't at least appear to be cherry picked, and there were rarely sort of some clear differentiation if you had ten of the same card, unless you got a gain word card that was always slightly faster. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's just these sort of. I guess we've gotten to a stage as well where graphics cards are a lot more, how to put it, they're the same yet not the same because a lot of the vendors are doing their own little tweaks. Coolers are a lot more different. Back in the day, it was all reference coolers with a different color or something like that, right? <laughs> yeah, with a different girl holding a sword on the fan. Yeah. Now now we're at the point where everyone does their own sort of unique kind of cooling for better or worse. And that seems to matter more than pretty much everything else except maybe some other power regulation and some overclocking bits and whatever but yeah well i mean i i don't i I guess the question well actually to your point of like it shouldn't have to be that way i would just say i don't know what it should or shouldn't be i just know that if we act a certain way that's how it's gonna be (laughs) yeah yeah for sure like how, how do you think reviews should be handled like if you were now you're in charge of like a a major tech you know whatever like how ideally would we be doing it so that it isn't easy to manipulate us and that we can get the full picture of what a thing will actually cost before recommending if someone should buy it well for, first of all i think nvidia and amd should set different deadlines have reviews like a week ahead mm-hmm. of retail availability because that that gives reviewers enough time to work on their reviews it gives people a fair chance to read up on the products and make a sort of educated decision in what they're purchasing. Mm-hmm. And this is something that shouldn't be very hard to coordinate with the sort of graphics cards or motherboard or whatever manufacturers. Well, yeah, but again, I think you're starting to see 
NVIDIA used that to their advantage, though. They're like, oh, yeah, we're yeah. pushing up the 3050 review day because we know it's going to get better reviews than the competition. And we also know it's not really going to cost what we told you it was going to cost. So if we just push up the reviews, actually, we can use that to manipulate people to buy it more. <laughs> but but <laughs> I know? think, again, they're playing these different websites against each other as well, where they're making them compete to be first with the reviews, which is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think a good question to ask, though, on that is, do, do you have to be day one? And I, everyone hears me and goes, and you, I think it goes for, like, video game reviews as well, by the way, where everyone assumes they have to be day one. I release graphics card reviews months after they launch because it's not my focus. And, no, I don't get as many views as the big review sites. But I can tell you what, when I look around at a lot of similar-sized YouTube channels, to mine in terms of subscribers, my graphics card reviews seem to get substantially more than some people that just get five to 10,000 views on day one, and I'll get 30,000. And it's like, yeah, I think it's because they're going to hear something they haven't before. I didn't need to be first. I just needed to take my time. Do you think people are assuming they need day one reviews and, and it actually might not be benefiting them as much as it might to just have a more take your time to actually think about it and use it for a long time and, and evaluate if it'll cost what they say it will. Uh, I think it's become one of these, uh, what is it, FOMO kind of things, mm -hmm. right? If you don't get to read a day one review, you missed out and you're not in the know kind of thing as well. Because there, there's obviously a part of this community that is always wants to be on top of the latest and know before everyone else right mm -hmm. that's where we're having so much speculation and rumors and things that people are reading that are interesting i mean that's what you make a living out of to cater to all these people right mm -hmm. but at the same time i don't know if it really matters i mean i've i've seen what uh, wizard over at tech power up is doing and he puts up some day one reviews but he also puts up some reviews a day after and a week after and i i think he has I mm -hmm. obviously don't know the stats on these things, but I, I presume he has a good readership on it. And there seems to be a similar amount of comments on those kind of week later reviews. And and sometimes it's certain. Cert right. Everyone has FOMO. Yeah. But has anyone asked, is it a waste of, is it wasted? Like, is it a, maybe, you know, you're only hurting yourself by being first, in fact. Well, uh, I guess some people have already decided they're going to buy the next card from NVIDIA or AMD or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the reviews don't even matter to them because they've already said, oh, I'm going to buy this and that's what I've saved up for, or, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. So the the reviews might not even matter and then they go back and read them and then they're sort of having regrets instead. <laughs> or they only look for the reviews that tell them they were smart. <laughs> they buy it, then they read the review because they're excited it's going to arrive. Yeah, a lot of people want to verify their purchases as well, right? It's like, mm -hmm. yeah, I, did, I bought the right card. And... Let me, Tick Dickler writes in, and he says, is there anything in the tech media space that you particularly look down on? The communication to the mainstream has a lot of bad actors with the same comprehension of current events that I do a buffing with my car. It's just enough to confidently butcher it completely. If you also see a pattern of deterioration, who would you blame? And I think he is, yeah, kind of touching on things we've been discussing, like a lot of people are complaining about this price or, oh, a flood happened, so now they're using that as an excuse. And it's like, no, it's not a false flag operation. Like that flood actually did make the price go up that month. Like 
what who is to blame for this happening where people aren't seemingly paying i i don't think you know uh, i think a lot of people are getting very mad at certain things that are the easy things to get mad at that aren't actually the issue and you know i don't know there, there's definitely some people who think they're better than everyone else mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure you have some idea of some of your youtube friends who are sort of you know we're the biggest we're the best and I, I don't like that. I mean, there, there's a certain person that has a certain reputation and who gets a lot of the, of his requests accepted by the companies. They, they treat him sort of like royalty. And, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think that's cool because we're all in the same industry. And just because you manage to become slightly bigger than everyone else, what, what does that, what, why, do, why do you deserve a preferential treatment? Well, and I'll say that there have been times where I feel like if I disagree with a channel that's substantially bigger than mine, and, I, and a lot of times I think they didn't even realize they were doing it and then pulled back, but there's this knee-jerk reaction, you know, I'm so big, how dare anyone disagree with me? I better bully yeah. the other opinions out there online. And no, it's that, like That's also not pleasant. I mean, I, I've over the years I've been in the industry, I've tried to make friends with everyone. I know people like tech journalists from all over the world and obviously i'm a bit of a silly guy and i make some stupid jokes sometimes not everyone appreciates that first time i met tom i said oh so you're the famous dentist and he got so pissed off with me i certainly am guilty of that too where let's be fair i can be flippant <laughs> you know yeah. and i think people take that as a direct attack and i'm like no, i didn't mean it but yeah go on it, it was just a stupid joke kind of thing but yeah i've mm -hmm. had some people that just won't talk to me again after that but again I, I think the industry on a whole has at least been very good it's been mm -hmm. a lot of nice people out there that i met over the years but recently it seemed to have taken a turn to get kind of a bit nasty with a lot of finger pointing and sort of people pretending to be something they're not mm -hmm. and i don't like that I mean, yeah, I mean, without saying anything, there are, so uh, you know, you know, I talk to a lot of YouTubers that come on my show as guests and I talk to them offline and I think a lot of them really do genuinely want to get better at understanding what's going on and are getting better at it. I think there's others that have, you know, millions of subscribers and they're like, I don't know if that guy can even run a benchmark correctly, but because he's yeah, got yeah, so many subscribers, exactly. he's just attacking people on Twitter because he thinks he's the best. Yeah, no, but there, there's definitely a lot of that. And then you're getting sort of the so-called influencers, which is just... Mm -hmm. So things are also changing, but some people are stuck in the old ways and they're not willing to change because oh, I've done this for the past five, ten years and, you know, I've never had any complaints from my viewers or readers or whatever. But I think you need to adapt and move with the times a bit and that that's also something that's really hard. You know, and I guess just to bring it full circle on this conversation one more time, like... I think you're seeing a lot of the finger pointing and a lot of the anger and anti-social, shall we say, behavior towards each other coming from, honestly, a lot of people are under a lot of stress right now. <laughs> it's yeah, been sure. a stressful few years, and a lot of the reviewers are under more stress because there's this disillusionment in malaise that seems to be going away a little bit, but there was over a year where like every TechTuber just got their views cut down and half, if they were lucky, a lot of them, they were cut down to a tenth of what they used to got because of the loss of interest. And then, you know, it makes them rush out reviews even faster and get even more stressed out if they get less views. Like, 
but again, but this, like this kind of takes us back to what we talked about earlier about commodities. Mm -hmm. I mean, computers are commodities these days. They're nothing special to most people. So people get different interests. I think when I started, at least, you had to learn how to use a computer. You had to, DOS was like the operating system. And, you know, the, these days people buy a tablet and thinks it's a computer kind of thing, which, mm -hmm. yes, it is, but not in the same sense. And someone that starts with a tablet, they could never fix a problem with a proper computer because they wouldn't even know where to start. Mm -hmm. And I see some of the older generation on Twitter and whatever, they kind of complaining about this, that, you know, these people who starts out now, they're useless. They can't even work in the industry and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, we've kind of gotten to a point where people don't, they, they, they buy hardware to upgrade their computer. They buy an SSD or something and they don't even know how to make it work. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, I think a lot of the old timers, if we put it that way, we, we're kind of starting to lose interest because it feels like it's just same thing over and over again. And, you know, it's getting more and more expensive. And this hobby is now kind of to the point where it's not worth it anymore. So I'll go and do something else. And a lot of the new people, well, they don't have the attention span to hang around either. I mean, we've been talking now for couple hours and there's definitely people who who don't have the attention span and I, i've seen just this past week there are people saying well you know i don't want to watch things on youtube because i like reading reviews or you mm -hmm. know and i i have to agree somewhat to that personally there there's advantages of video of course you can do things that you cannot do with text but i hate watching graphs in a video because it's really hard <laughs> to see what's going on mm-hmm so th there's pros and cons of both medias. And I think a lot of people have forgotten about the written media and focusing 100% on just videos, which doesn't work for everything. Well, but there is still a market out there. Like Broken Silicon has been a very successful podcast, relatively speaking, to like you look at a lot of live streams on a, a lot of bigger channels or, or po their podcasts. And it's like, yeah, it gets like this many views. Broken Silicon is successful i think because we're willing to talk this long and there is a market for that it's sure. just a market that a lot of people have forgotten and you know it, it, i guess a final word on this whole idea too we're talking about how it's changing i was throwing this idea around with my brother the co-host of broken silicon news episodes the other day it's like everyone keeps talking about like oh let's make gaming bigger let's make our hobby bigger let's get more gamers more gamers more people building pcs that'll make the hobby bigger and that makes everything better and i think to a certain degree it does make things better but also to a certain degree look the more percentage of people that do a thing the less it's going to be an informed hobby and the more it's going to be about i mean if only the true geeks were building pcs then all reviews are going to be super technical and ask hard <laughs> questions because we're dorks i want sure. uh, my entire channel is asking questions that i think i'm trying i literally when i make videos i'm like what is a, an opinion other people are going to forget or what is what is something that no one's asking about this you know but the bigger this hobby gets then that means less of them are as hardcore and yeah, it yeah, is going to sure. dilute kind and, of the and, reviews and some and, people just like playing games Mm -hmm. they, they have no interest in the hardware. They just want a PC that runs all their games, and that's that. Mm -hmm. Which is well, it, I'm going to say something controversial, you know. And it's go. I I mostly game on PC, but I think 
the PC gaming renaissance that brought down prices to ridiculous levels. Again, actually competing with console price performance was insane. Not true anymore, clearly. But, you know, that brought in a lot of gamers that wouldn't have considered a PC otherwise. And I've said something controversial to some of my friends who are like, yeah, but if a gaming PC costs this much and does this... isn't that more expensive even than getting that performance on a laptop? And I'm like, yeah, right now it kind of is. And he's like, well, then why would I build a PC? And I'm like, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe not everyone is supposed to be a PC gamer. You know, maybe not everyone is an enthusiast, but it's been marketed in a way that it's like everyone can have this God PC and now they're finding they can't or there's drawbacks to it. And people are asking, well, why can't it just do what I want it to? And it's like, well, this is for dorks, though. This isn't supposed to be for everyone. No, but a good example is my cousin. He's in his 60s. He's been a console gamer for years. He's a huge Sony fanboy. <laughs> he, got, he, he has all his PlayStation consoles still tucked away, sort of in storage. Mm-hmm. And he bought a PC maybe, was that, 10 years ago or something like mm-hmm. that. And he, he hated it because he didn't understand how to use it properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's okay for getting online and watching movies on and whatever, but he was not at all a PC gamer. And yeah, he has a computer because he needs something else to get online with and his phone kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But he's a huge, huge gamer and he buys all the latest games and consoles and, well, Sony consoles, at least. <laughs> so th- there's obviously people who just want to play games and they don't care about the hardware inside. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think this influx has catered a lot of the reviews and stuff to be simplified or mm-hmm. be more about being, I, I worry, about, more about being first and less about asking hard questions, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think also something that's being forgotten is sort of, the fact that these are corporations, we, we're not here to serve them. We're here no. to actually ask them questions and sort of put them, make them sort of stand up and go, hey, hang on, what's going on? Sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Where, whereas most media these days, they're just kind of being nice and playing along and giving out awards. But if everyone just gives only good or only bad reviews, people stop paying attention, though, because if it all sounds the same, you know. And I do think that's something this industry is going through, again, for better or worse, is I think we are going to come out of this with another great era in a few years. And I think things will start to get better. But I just it's rough right now, guys. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And half of it, we did it to ourselves, honestly. You know, I think it's time to start winding this down let me see here, though. Ooh, that one guy writes and it says, Hi, Tom and Lars. Thank you for sharing your links with us. And I read through it and all the components that had you employ, all the companies that employed you. I recognize two of them, Cooler Master and MSI. <laughs> Ironically, those two companies only had you employed for five or seven months while you stayed away longer in jobs reviewing components, writing about them in the other technologies. And then you ended up managing your own company, freelancing for Gigabyte, Asus, etc., leading a startup and then managing again at a consultant company for five years in Taipei. That's awesome. It seems like you made quite the evolution. What did you learn about working for those bigger companies and your motivation in working with or not with them in general? Well, I, I, I learned that all these large corporations are a lot more incompetent than you'd think. Mm. <laughs> it's really quite surprising. And uh, at least the Taiwanese companies, they have way too many employees that are 
only given single tasks to do. So if this is your job, that's all you do. You don't step outside mm. your box because then your boss will come and slap you. It's completely unlike anything I was used to when I moved here because I'm used to people kind of taking responsibility and trying to grow in their jobs and trying to take on more work when there's downtime and trying to help out. It just doesn't happen here. No one wants responsibility. It's hands off if they can. It's really quite strange to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at one point I was offered a job here by one of the large companies. The the person who was going to be my boss there took me around and introduced me to a lot of people. And I hadn't signed a contract at this point. Went to the HR department and sat down and we had a discussion and I read through the contract and said, well, this, this and this is not in the contract. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh no, we, we, we can't do that. Someone can see that then and then they will ask for the same things. So I said, thank you and goodbye and walked out of there. Because here, if it's not in writing, it means nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it is very, very different to work here. And in some ways i hope i never work for a taiwanese company again because it's not the most pleasant experience i will say Mm -hmm. and that's why you think you've enjoyed doing reviews and having your own company more so than working at the bigger ones working with the taiwanese are very different than working for them Mm -hmm. i mean i work with a lot of really good people here and there are some very smart people here there are some very knowledgeable people here but Unfortunately, a lot of these big corporations have way too many layers of management and they have way too many people that are hired to do these single task jobs that are just a real waste of space, I would say. Mm -hmm. And instead of sort of training people on the job, getting them to improve and move up within the company, people quit and go to a different company to get a pay rise or get a, a promotion. Mm-hmm. So the whole work culture here is so different from anywhere else, I would say. I, obviously, I don't know for the rest of Asia, but maybe it's the same mm. in this part of the world. But it, it's such a strange way of doing things where I thought companies, they, they valued their staff, but everyone is replaceable here. Mm-hmm. So Well, and so that's one thing I would say is that I've heard um <laughs> actually talking to my parents the other day you know about different workforces now people my age and younger and and a lot of it's like well you know people don't stay at a company for a long time they go and get a raise at another company and i'm like yeah but people do that cuz they know they're not going to get a raise at the company they work for <laughs> like no one gives raises anymore so well, that that might have changed as well but at least you used to get promotions but not even that happens here mhm but the the other sort of bizarre thing here is that people that have left, they've been somewhere else for three, four years, they come back and then get rehired and get a higher position and a higher salary. <laughs> yeah, you're incentivizing the workers to act that way then. You yeah. Know. So that that's something I don't think happens in most countries either. When someone leaves, they're usually not welcome back. Mm. Unless you're Pat, maybe. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, you'd have to come back as something really senior then, right? Not just the next level up for the same job Mm -hmm. but yeah i i think there's a lot of wasted resources here and a lot of the companies here could do so so much better if they just sat down and looked at how they're they're doing their businesses Mm -hmm. it's really incredible 
just like the marketing side of things here how, how poorly they care about their branding like one of the disasters that happened last year was the gigabyte power supply fires right mm -hmm. and it took them so long to react on this and even sort of respond to this that's not how you handle a crisis but there, there's no crisis handling here and the, these are sort of the things that corporations here really need to step up and realize that you know if you're going to do business in other parts of the world you need to consider how these things are done there as well not just how we do things locally uh, i mean if you want to be a top brand in your industry you think they would have a cohesive brand message a marketing message a, a company sort of <laughs> look and feel mm-hmm but they, they spend nothing or as little as possible on marketing. I, I, I tried to explain to them, why do you think Coca-Cola makes advertising? Because the first thing you should think of when you want to buy a soft drink, Coke. Mm -hmm. That should be the same with your brands when people want to buy a motherboard or a graphics card or something like that. But they don't get it. To them, marketing, PR, that stuff, that's an expense. So unless you can show on a spreadsheet yeah. that this expense gives you this much in return, it's not a consideration. Well, that's the thing, too, about marketing that I do wonder in this age of like, and this becomes a greater question that we, you know, that we don't need to answer. But I do wonder how much of marketing right now is just, well, we're pretty sure we're making more money, so we should spend this much on it. And there's no thought put into if that's actually getting anyone to buy your product. I think there's a lot of bloat. Yeah, for sure. But they're not spending more. They're, they're spending less on marketing because they know it still sells now. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, exactly. But that, I, I wonder how much of the marketing is just there. It's like, you you know, just because you plaster a name on something or you put it on one thing doesn't mean it's helping. It's got to no. be marketing that advantages you. And yeah, the yeah. answer isn't either more or less. It's just, I just see so much marketing now where I'm like, that would never have made me buy that. <laughs> mm, no, exactly. And it's not just, you know, tech products, right? But No. Yeah, I'm talking about everything. Like, I mean, some ads, I, I don't... I can't think of a specific example right now, but some ads I see and I'm just like, yeah, but I'm not going to buy that. Why do you keep showing me this? And I'm going to buy this when I need it. Not because, you know, you know, there are some products where I do wonder, um, mm -hmm. well, yeah, like I, I guess some of them they don't do, but it's always like, I, I love when I see like an ad for like, you know, or like Netflix or something. It's just like Netflix, you have to have us. It's like, what are you advertising? We all have it already, you know, but yeah, no, it's, definitely some strange marketing as well and now all these taiwanese companies that are seemingly jumping on the nft bandwagon bandwagon and it's sort of like huh i don't know if we have time to get into <laughs> no no um, not, oh. but i'm saying that that seems to be a thing they think they can market themselves and mm -hmm. people are just laughing at them it's a new buzzword so mm -hmm. if they exactly. don't do something with it they're behind the times they're boomers if they don't have nfts i think a lot of them <laughs> thinking it's like no this one's actually pretty dumb guys you might want to ignore this one but um i guess final question i have is just one bigger uh, just one big thing you know we've, we've skipped around a lot you know um we, we've, we've jumped all over the place but when it comes to the production you know the manufacturing the pricing what causes the pricing of a product 
what are comes to your mind of like the things people are missing and like why products are actually launched a certain way or priced a certain way? Like, what do you think people don't understand in the supply chain that need that maybe they should? Not even the supply chain, but uh, if you're not a company that designs your own products in-house, the big cost is NRE fees, non-recurring engineering fees. Mm-hmm. If you go to a company and tell them, hey, I, I want to make this product, they charge you an engineering fee that can be hundreds of thousands or even millions of bucks. Mm-hmm. So that that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize. Obviously, the graphics cards and the motherboard guys, they have their own engineering teams in-house, right? But even so, they, there's a cost for those people, and that that's being calculated into the cost of the product. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't even consider that as a cost because, oh, these people work for the company. And I, I think also now what we've seen with all these sort of uh, UFI updates, BIOS updates for all the motherboards, I think the motherboard manufacturer are putting on a little bit for the engineering time to do all that as well on their new products. Mm-hmm. Because it's a cost to them and it's to no benefit of them, really. I mean, everyone is talking about AMD and, oh, they promised so and so long support for AM4 and blah, blah, blah. But the motherboard makers aren't happy about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they want to sell you a new motherboard, right? That That's their business. They don't make any money to give you a UFI updates to use, can use a new CPU in your old motherboard. Right, and I think people miss that too because they'll go, well, Intel sells a lot of the chipsets and, you know, AMD makes their chipsets too a lot of the time. And, well, th- they make you upgrade motherboards because Intel's making more money every time you buy a new motherboard. And it's like some of that, well, that's definitely true. But also the motherboard makers want them to. So Intel's yeah. being rewarded by the motherboard makers for doing this because they're like yeah we're going to work with intel because we're going to make more money working with intel and obviously intel is also giving them a bigger nre compared to what amd does amd doesn't seem to have much at all at the moment hopefully that Mm -hmm. might be something where they will expand and realize that that's something they need to stay competitive as well because a lot of the intel motherboards especially the low-end products they rely heavily on getting that kickback from intel for their advertising money that's supposed to go to their distribution partners and whatever, but ends up in the motherboard manufacturer's pocket instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do wonder, like, this longevity uh, sorry, thing. Sorry, I said NRE. I meant MDF. <laughs> oh. Market uh, Development Fund. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I knew what you were talking about. Yeah, I completely but... mixed up the term there. But, yeah, obviously those kind of things matter for these companies as well, especially for the sort of low-margin products. Mm-hmm. But I think we'll also the the cost that we're not seeing is probably the fact that these companies now have realized that they need to have a little bit more padding in the revenue of these products, especially the higher end boards. So they've started to retain more of the revenue from these products, which has meant higher prices too. Mm-hmm. I mean, traditionally these guys had ten percent, fifteen percent margin on motherboards. Some companies now have up to 30% margin, maybe even mm-hmm. more. So there's a change in mindset from these companies as well that while well, we sell more premium products now, so we should retain more of the revenue from these products. So it's not necessarily cost with developing the products, but the companies are changing the way they're doing business a little bit. Well, I think you saw 
for example, just play devil's advocate for like why that's not always malicious is, you know, AMD made the 4870, of course, which is famous for basically what is it was I think that was during Nvidia's TerraScale architecture, like basically making something 90% as good as what in Nvidia had while using less energy and then it costs like 200 you know they're selling those things for like half the price or less of nvidia and they took market share but how much market share did they take they they were above 55 percent. well whatever so even if and, nvidia and, is selling how 40 percent right partners exactly their partner amd you know to the aibs yay low margins they're like they don't want that and even yep. if nvidia sells 40 percent of the market they're making twice as much on the cards they're gonna have more money for r d and there's a certain amount of this where i i just think a lot of amd's actions were stupid i mean it's like i'm sorry they have, it was nice and i do think they should try to charge less than nvidia but charging that much less almost bankrupted their company because nvidia just had more money to keep spending every year yeah, I mean, I think that's what these companies in Taiwan has also realized that we, we can't live on these sort of 10% margins that we've traditionally charged for our products because we don't have the volume anymore. Obviously, now there's been a boom for all these companies than they've mm -hmm. had a better, like 2021 was probably, and 2020 as well, was probably the best years in like the past decade almost for some of these companies. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're making the best out of it now when things continue to sell. But it's a careful consideration there by some of these companies, I think, by how much they dare to tack on on their pricing. It's a balance, right? You want yeah. to make enough money, but you want to keep market share. And going for half the price of your competitor really only makes sense if somehow you think that's going to allow you to take the entire market. It has to be going for broke, but you're probably not going to take the entire market. So or why if are your you... product really are that much cheaper to manufacture in the first place, which is rarely sure. the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, how many previous architectures where AMD is, you know, actually has products like Vega that actually cost more to make <laughs> than Pascal, and it's like, all right, guys, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, well, that that's the thing. I mean, we, we obviously don't know the real prices of a lot of these things, but it's still interesting that you're trying to compete on price when you're more expensive. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, yeah, I, I'm not... Uh, there was quite a few <laughs> answers given for that final question I asked. I mean, I think, yeah, again, it's funny. I, I keep coming to this at the end of a lot of these episodes when I talk to experts, whether I had a legal expert on recently and he was pointing out like, well, I think people just don't understand how many unseen things there are. Like they didn't do that dumb thing because they're dumb. They did it because mm -hmm. there was actually some weird regulation. And yeah. like a lot of these pricing and specs that look stupid sometimes, it's like, it's because like redesigning the die costs like 5 million bucks, dude. <laughs> like Yeah, but that that's something. There, there's been a lot of, well, a lot, but there's been some of these people going, oh, why didn't they just redesign it? Yeah, because that's exactly it. It costs five million bucks to retape out a chip. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll tell you a short little thing here. Via has a division called Via Live. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they make a lot of the USB stuff, right? You've seen mm -hmm. their chips on some things, I'm sure. And they hired a guy to design a USB stick controller. And he was apparently very incompetent, screwed up the first time. They taped it out again, still didn't work. Uh. Taped it out a second time, still didn't work. And the guy got fired because he cost the company a lot of money. So these things happen as well. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing that for a GPU, then who? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're never going to work in the industry again.
And I think AMD has had problems having to retape things out too. All of these companies have at some point. And I think sure. they're just realizing like, well, we're going to design it specifically for this and we're going to stay the course because launching on time is half the time the best thing you can do anyways, you know, and then the next one will try to make that better. Um, I, and I think uh, another final note to end on too is just you, we've kind of been dancing around this. A lot of people assume maliciousness or something, you know, for a reason, something turned out a certain given way. It's like half the time it was just a mistake guys <laughs> or incompetence, well, you know, or like some guy in the supply chain messed up something literally. And then there was a fire and then that's why that happened. Well, wasn't it Asus who were mounting some components back to front on some of the motherboards recently? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Typical example of like someone did some supplier put the chips the wrong way around in a tape reel, mm -hmm. and it was only some of them, right? Because it's not everyone having this issue. And you don't, as a manufacturer, you're just going to assume these components in the tape reels you have in the SMT machines. You just mount them in, and you expect the components to be inside this right way around. Mm -hmm. But obviously, something fell during inspection there, or testing at the factory i don't know or maybe required a certain amount of time or load or something before that problem to actually appear mm -hmm. but it shows how simple it is that something goes wrong because one of your suppliers screwed up a little bit yeah and um you know and then there's a cost to <laughs> more expenses and you know yeah. there's much more going on behind the scenes people <laughs> than sure. i think a lot of people give credit but I think we've been talking for quite a while. I know it's very late where you are <laughs> in Taipei, and I want to thank you for coming on. No, um, any any last words or thoughts, you know, or anything you want to plug? You know, your LinkedIn's in the description if someone wants to hire you or something. I, I am looking for a job, but yeah, that that would be it. But I am sort of planning to leave this part of the world so i'm looking for somewhere in europe so if someone mm -hmm. is listening and looking for someone with my <laughs> strange background please let me know i mean to be honest it sounds ridiculous but there probably is i mean this if you if you look at the people that listen you'd be surprised how many people in the industry or maybe you wouldn't because you know who's actually interested in this stuff? People who work in the industry are, are yeah, probably sure. in Europe and will check out your LinkedIn now. So, all I can say is, for the past couple of years, you've been someone that I re reach out to every now and then to get your opinion on things or ask if this makes sense. And at least as someone who doesn't work in the industry, an opinion doesn't matter. At least from my perspective, you've always had a level of input and thought put in that I think l less people have than people realize. So, I mean, I guess. My word may be worth nothing, but I recommend you. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, and thank you, everybody, for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Laws Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Laws Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. 
If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans, patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it, and so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Medlin, Anthony Greffa, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I Love You, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Akwari, Frederick Lau, Lin Yi, Justin Paris, Zachary Martin, Terrence Hare, Adrita Full, Phil S, D31337, Antics, Jackson A. Miller, Jesse Jeskowiak, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Goodney, Mechanical Philosopher, Ewoking Kilo, Fatboy Deesru, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Coal Addict, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, F7GOS, Matthew Landavazo, My Name is Nobody, Judson N. Alethros, Jensen Wang, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Rentaro Matsukata, John Jameson, Sam Vensel, Matthew Lane, Ryark Raidmaker, Jane Renner, Chris Licata, Michael McKee, Meyer Techrans, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Grow, 3DS Boy 08, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Sandy, Garrido, Saunderson, Joachim Hagen, Teak Autumn, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S. C. Chitz, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Hexa Puma, Tom Sanfilippo, Justice Brennan, Zutsu Taylor, Trevor Powers, Stu, Elena, Nanon, Daniel Nishbal, Franco Fredrick, Dan Galanowski, Ian Clifford, Axel Cisneros, Slayton Perry, Joseph Caraman, Brett Summers, Blake, Donovan Russell, Noah Nicoella, Zlicky, Martin Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tanhulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canos Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Brucha, Jeremy So, Michelle Pell, Silvanos, Eddie Del Castillo, Jacob Laster, Luis Correa, Deke, Otiv Kurtz, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Regelman, Justin Gower, Caillou Markelli, Dave McCoy, Valcom Alev, Gabe Langner, Ronnie, DNA Tech, Michael Deaton, MJV1, Maurice Courtois, Wesley Sager, Sarcastro, Mai Sharona, Y Troy, Roman, William W. Draper, Errat, Spamton, G. Spamton, Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Emil Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, James Anderson, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpit Sharma, Meet and Pork, Jimmy NG, Mads, Matthew Lazier, Benjamin Oshley, Mark Mitchell, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Wasink, Mohammed, John DeBunt, Pulse Media, Sean Ashmont, Daniel Dewar, Stephen Chang, JSMMH, Georgie Kastadinov, PC Beast 22, Reginald Ari, Narithiel, Ivan, Charles Russell, Hal Buma, Arkarsh, Edithia, The Grid, Andrew S., Chris Rich, Joachim Hagen, Desist, Josh Law, Aiden, 
Chris P. Bacon, Christine Zabit03, and Paul Zagartowski. And thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>